We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up on today's Rippy Rights podcast? We have Charlie Burris of A to Z Sports, uh, host of the Big Orange podcast, covers Tennessee, been around the program around Knoxville a long time as we continue our Ole Miss season preview content, previewing, talking to an opposing media member of all of Ole Miss's eight SEC opponents. Went out of order. I was trying to go through the schedule in order. Didn't even know I went out of order. I'll explain that in a second. But first, we have Mailbag Friday, first and foremost. It is the people's holiday. Hope you're all out there celebrating accordingly. So I'll take your mailbag questions at the top, and then we'll get to the Charlie Burris interview after that. So consider this a makeup for not having three podcasts out this week, which I'll explain in a minute because I went out of order and things got out of whack in terms of uh, the old content machine because, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's me. So anyway, consider this uh, two pods in one. So anyway, let's go. Rippy writes with Brian Scott. Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's happening? Happy Friday. I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. It is Mailbag Friday. The people's holiday is on us, upon us once again. Little different intro to the show today, huh? I know. Threw a little curveball at the people today. I uh, will. Uh, we'll have some ads in here at some point, but I'm uh, moving them around. Some uh, some asshole on the message board that I am employed by now uh, was complaining, saying the 35, 45 second each ad read ruined the show. And uh, honestly, I'm not changing it on his account. I'd honestly just like to know what podcast he's listening to that doesn't have ads. But at the same time, I did think about maybe scattering them throughout the show. So they will creep up on you because we have to pay the bills. But we're just going to get right into it to start today. Not because of said complainer, because I am the sole proprietor of this show. And uh, we go as my rules go. Today, it's a mix between a mailbag Friday and continuing with our football content preview series. So just a little inside baseball, a uh, little, uh, little industry news here. I plan to have three podcasts out this week. I was going to do a Mailbag Friday, obviously on Friday, the people's holiday, and have our uh, continuation of the SEC, Ole Miss SEC opponents preview as the midweek show but I struck out trying to get any sort of Tennessee beat writer on the show. I don't know if they have an anti-DMs policy. Not really sure what's up there. I, I think I might have just become that guy on the beat that DM'd everyone that no one apparently responded to. Not really sure what's going on there. 
Long story short, we ended up with Charlie Burris, who had his DMs closed. So I couldn't DM him, but got his number from a friend. He was awesome. Electric, electric interview with Charlie on the state of Tennessee football. Uh, you know, Josh Heupel, the Jeremy Pruitt exit. We got into a lot of stuff. So that's going to be at the end of the show. But the, uh, the inside baseball portion of this was my whole plan in doing this preview content series was to go in order of Ole Miss's SEC opponents. So I started getting stressed out about trying to find a guy for Wednesday's show and was like, I right, to hell with it. We'll just kick it a couple of days and we'll just do two podcasts this week with Mailbag Friday being ultra long if I can get a guy. And then right after Charlie agreed to come on, I realized that that is not Ole Miss's second SEC opponent. Uh, we did Alabama last week. Ole Miss host Arkansas in between. So after all that hassle, I looked at the schedule and thought, okay, I went out of order after all. So that's, uh, that's just a little insight into my brain. I'm not smart. So anyway, we'll get back on schedule with it next week. I guess we'll do Arkansas next week, and then we'll get back on track with whoever's after that. I'm not even going to make a statement as to who the schedule is because clearly I screwed it up. So anyway, that's what we got going on today. So we're going to get into your mailbag questions at the top half of the podcast. And then the Charlie Burris interview, again, A to Z Sports, host of the Big Orange podcast. He was great. He was awesome. I uh, I, I really lucked out in terms of having to- – a little bit of tough luck finding someone from the old Tennessee beat to come on. He, uh, he will now be my new number one choice. He was great. So I think you'll enjoy that interview. But we'll, uh, we'll get to your people's holiday questions off the top. Had a lot of different array of questions this week. We had the guy, guy last week uh, checking back in. So he asked last week uh, if I've ever woken up naked after a night out. Not really sure what he was getting at. Uh, so we've got a follow-up from him that I don't quite understand because the internet's a weird place. So we're going uh, to jump all over the map today. So let's just dive right in to these mailbag questions because this was probably officially the worst podcast intro of all time, and I've had a lot of bad podcast intros. So anyway, let's just dive right in. Let's start with the topical one. Let's see. If – each coach at Ole Miss was an alcohol. Who would that be? So this is a follow-up from us, from me last week answering what uh, every SEC coach would be alcohol-wise, which I put absolutely no thought into, but whatever. Uh, we're rolling with it. Each coach, I'm guessing you mean head coach at Ole Miss. I'll start with Mike Bianco. O'Doul's. Lane Kiffin, I will go... Hmm... I'm going to go upper shelf whiskey. Lane looks like he likes to get into the brown water a little bit after maybe a hard day out on the boat, catching some snook off the dock, maybe off his, uh, maybe off his boat in Boca, uh, and he grabs the top shelf whiskey after a nice day's haul. So I'm going to go, I don't know, Woodford Reserve. Someone out there is going to scoff at that notion that Woodward, Woodford Reserve is top shelf. Uh, spoiler alert, I'm not a whiskey drinker, and then anytime I got invited to a girl's formal, and she asked me, in college that is, and asked me what type of whiskey I wanted. That was the nicest one I could come up with. So uh, that's what I'm going with. I am definitely a noob when it comes to whiskey. So that's my answer. And then Kermit Davis? Hmm. I'll go champagne. It kicks you in the butt to start. It's kind of like, oh, we got something here. And then is a little disappointing after like the third or fourth one. Uh, and maybe hopefully Kermit Davis rectifies that this year. But I'm just going to label him as champagne because I put – Absolutely no thought into this beyond that. So that's the big three. 
I'm just going to leave it at that one. I, I don't really want to – I don't know how to get into the other coaches. Uh, if Mike Smith, the old softball coach, were still around, I might say four loco uh, or whatever those things were they got outlawed. But uh, that's about all I got for you in the arsenal in terms of if coaches were alcoholic drinks at Ole Miss because that is a very on-brand Ole Miss question without a shadow of a doubt. So, anyway, moving along, keeping it moving on this fine – late Thursday night as we record this a little more topical one here. John Mark Roberts checks in and he asks, what will be a successful Ole Miss football season? Well, you know, it's kind of funny you mentioned that or you funny you asked that because there's a couple of different ways to look at this as you kind of go down the schedule. There's 11 winnable games on Ole Miss's schedule as I've kind of covered on this podcast before. Every game I think you could make a case Ole Miss could win except for Alabama. Now, if you're listening to this and you're the eternal optimist and you want to go, well, they could beat Alabama, okay, uh, I got, really got nothing for you there. They're not beating Alabama. Alabama, if uh, they can get the quarterback thing down, it's going to be pretty salty defensively and it's still pretty good at receiver and is absurd on the offensive line despite having to replace three starters. I just don't really see it, I guess is what I'm getting at. But everyone else, you can make a case. I think a is going to be really good. I think that's probably closer to the whole Alabama unwinnable one than it is a coin flip. It's somewhere in that spectrum, but you could make a case that Ole Miss upsets Texas A&M and Oxford. I wouldn't wager on it. So, you know, and then outside of that, I mean, LSU, does that really scare you? Auburn, no. Tennessee, no. Arkansas, no. You know, Vanderbilt, of course not. Egg Bowl, no. Like, none of those things really, like, has you trembling in your boots. So, Ole Miss has 11 winnable games on the schedule, assuming they take care of business against Louisville on Labor Day night. So if you're trying to like quantify this as a wins and loss thing, I, I guess I'd go eight and four. Ole Miss needs to go four and oh in the non-conference. And then, you know, let me pick your wins. Arkansas, LSU, you take care of business against Vanderbilt at home. So that's already three. And then you win the Egg Bowl and then maybe a road game at Tennessee. I think Ole Miss will beat Tennessee. Charlie Burris and I will got into that at the uh, at the end of our interview, uh, kind of what that game shapes up to be from a 10,000-foot view a couple months away from it. Uh, you know, you get one of those two. So let's just say they split on the road at the Egg Bowl uh, or Tennessee at Tennessee. I actually like Ole Miss's chances to win both of those games right now. So that puts you at eight and four assuming you don't have a uh, kind of a slip-up or a, a, a piss-the-bed moment, for the lack of a better phrase, against an, you know, an Arkansas team that you should beat or maybe LSU comes in there and gets you. You get what I'm saying. There's some leeway. So I think 8-4 and four would be considered a pretty successful season. I think there's a path where 7-5, and five, I guess, could be successful, but it would depend on how it looked. Like Ole Miss would have to have one of those off games. I don't know. Maybe you get – God forbid another Matt Corral six interception game against LSU and like it just doesn't go your way and then you still split on the road against Tennessee and state and that gets you to seven and five to where it's like eh okay we had some good wins in there I say we as it like speaking from the Ole Miss perspective if I were a member of the team eh but you know it could have been better like it leaves something to be desired but it's not you know catastrophic I guess uh would be the best word for it you could be a success at seven and five, but I think eight and four or nine and three uh, would kind of be a success for this thing. And I think anything else would be a, a bit of a disappointment, which is kind of crazy to say, right? Ole Miss returned to the postseason for the first time in over half a decade. 
uh, against uh, Indiana in the Outback Bowl. And then now it's kind of a weird world to think, you know, two years into the Matt Luke successor that you would be upset as a fan going to a six and six, you know, lower tier bowl game. But I think that's where they're at. And I think that's a testament to the expectations that Lane Kiffin set in a very weird COVID season with the, as electric as they were offensively, how they've recruited the 2021 class towards the end and how 2022 seems to be shaping up and uh, kind of the staff he's hired. So Lane Kiffin has brought with him a vibe, as the youth say, from the time he stepped on campus. I've, I've made this example a couple of times, but Keith Carter, when he hired Lane Kiffin, said, I want to make a splash. And then he made a splash. He had people drinking at 11 a.m. in the pavilion on finals week just to see Lane Kiffin offer a bunch of canned quotes in a suit that someone clearly made him put on the red and blue tie. Like, it, it, it was exciting. And so I think he's carried that over over the last 18 months to two years uh, kind of into – increased expectations like I guess the expectations would have been dampened a little bit had Ole Miss just been a total train wreck uh in 2020 but they were far from that they were kind of a electric group to watch they were awful defensively and incredible on offense at times so I think the heightened expectations have have made the answer to this question probably eight and four uh would be considered a successful season like I said I kind of left the door open for seven and five, depending on how it looks. But I'll go eight and four. I, I think Ole Miss can win all of their non-conference games. And I think they can win all of their home conference games, with the one exception being A&M, because I do think a and is going to be really good and that's going to be tough. So win one of them on the road. Win three of the four at home. And then, you know, win at Tennessee or win at Mississippi State. Hell, just this is just an oversight, but they do play – on Halloween at Auburn, right? Like, I guess that's the best way to, to just to kind of encapsulate that. So Alabama's a wash. You're going to Tuscaloosa. They're going to get beat. If you can go two and one in the remaining three road games and then three and one in your SEC home games, that gets you to five and three. Or maybe you go two and two and three and one. I don't know. You get what I'm getting at. Um, so I think that's probably the path to eight and four. And I would consider that a successful season without getting too long-winded with the answer. So appreciate the question there checking in. John Mark Roberts checks in that again. What is your handicap? So I had it down to a four when I left high school, uh, which sounds like the uh, quite like typical humble brag. It's not. I was just state, statement of fact. It was, it was that when I left high school. It has definitely gotten worse since. But I have – Ever since I quit uh, being a reporter full-time and have had, you know, normal hours and a pretty solid work-life balance, I have gotten to play a lot more golf. And part of that's probably been moving to the Dallas-Fort Worth area where the public golf here is incredible. Um, so I've gotten back into it again, but I haven't, like, entered scores. Uh, honest to God, and I don't want to, like, overstate it and, and kind of be that, that jack wagon that, you know – high balls is handicapped to like impress people. That's not what I'm trying to get at. I would go between six and seven. I think I'm somewhere in that neighborhood. Again, I've been playing a bunch of golf lately, so I, I don't think that's totally unfair. So, you know, solid short hitter off the tee, hits a decent amount of greens, decent short game, and I can make some putts. Really not moving the needle uh, with regards to, uh, you know, wearing pants out to the course and telling your friends that you can't wait till you're 50 and join the senior tour. We're not talking about that. I would just say I'm aggressively average golfer. How about that for answer? Is a hot dog a sandwich? Man, it wouldn't be a mailbag Friday if we didn't get that question. Who gives a shit? Just eat it is my answer. Let's see. 
nightclub, brewery, or bar? Well, I guess I'll go brewery. It depends on the bar. I like sitting at a nice sports bar. I say nice sports bar, just a good like sports bar and watching a game. But like, I mean, I still do it because like my friends still come in town and I'm still young-ish, young-ish enough to where it's not weird to like go hit the town pretty hard when I'm back in Oxford. But like I could do without the $40 cover, have people elbowing you in the stomach or in my case, because a little bit smaller than normal uh, chest area, neck area to uh, get a drink at the library where they cram you in there at sardines. I could do without that. I do it anyway because uh, I'm a man of the people and I'm a hero, but uh, I could do without like that crowded bar scene, honest to God. Like I, I loved Oxford when it first opened back up and I know it wasn't ideal for businesses and I'm glad it's not still this way. But when Oxford first opened back up in the summer of 2020 towards the end, right before I moved out of there, the whole bar set up to where you had to go sit down somewhere and then they came to you. Like that was heaven to me because you're not crowded. You're not having to fight for a drink. So that was my idea of a bar. So I guess I, I enjoy some bars, but not like the whole like crowded bar thing. So for that reason, I'll go brewery. I like a good brewery. I'm not the uh, hipster micro brew guy. That's going to start telling you about the hops and the different beers I ordered and uh, what kind of barley it was brewed with. Not going to be that guy, but I do enjoy a nice brewery and, whatever local beer they have on tap. Like that, that's always a pleasant experience for me. Don't have a shocking, this might come as a shock despite my chiseled physique, uh, my, my, you know, gaudy jewelry and uh, the amount of gel I put in my hair. But I, I, I'm not a big nightclub scene guy. Just never really, never really had that in the, uh, in the tool bag. Like never really just had that as a, uh, as a go-to move. I don't really, I don't really dance. I don't really enjoy loud music. Uh, smoke machines in like pumped in oxygen I could do without I'm just not really a big uh nightclub guy I, I don't really enjoy wearing sunglasses inside ordering bottle service to kind of uh get into a uh you know what measuring contest with the table next to you just not a huge nightclub guy don't really have that in the in the uh in the repertoire not judging anyone that do, does like nightclubs you're seeing go at it man dance as close to as many people as you won't get all kinds of sweat on you I'm just saying not in my repertoire. So for that, I'm going to go with brewery. Let's see. Keeping it moving down the line. We're rolling through these. Here we go. What top three cities in the United States would you most want to host the next Olympics? Well, one, Jackson, Mississippi. It says not including LA because they'll host in 28. Why? Okay, one, Jackson, Mississippi. That would be hilarious. How you could have an Olympics uh, I don't think there's any sort of racing in the Olympics, but you could have an Olympics where they roll down, I don't know, pick a road, Old Canton, Ridgewood. And uh, by that point, I would imagine there'd just be potholes like landmines because it's bordering on that point and having the drivers avoid it. Maybe have the long distance runners try to avoid the potholes in the city. That would be hilarious. I'll give you a real answer, though. I don't know. DFW would be cool. I think I guess I'm biased because I live here, but like it seems big enough. You could figure it out. I mean, hell, if Atlanta had the Olympics, I think DFW could at this point. Um, I don't know. L.A. would be a cool one, but I know you said I can't use that one because it is already getting one. I don't really have – I don't know. I guess I'd have to think about it a little more. Miami would be kind of cool. I, I'm assuming that would be a summer Olympics in Miami. Not a whole lot of skiing getting done down there. But uh, I, I think Miami Olympics would be cool. I have no idea. I've been to Miami one time. Didn't really get to go out and see the scene. It was a work thing. Uh, so I didn't really like, I don't know if like that's 
palatable for the Olympics. I'm just reeling off cities off the top of my head. And then last one, I'll go Seattle. I really enjoyed that place. You could probably get away with winter or summer Olympics there. Probably going to be winter because they did have the winter Olympics in Whistler slash Vancouver, which is not very far from Seattle. I've actually gone to Whistler and Vancouver and flown into Seattle and driven across the border. Uh, so I think you, that would be a cool city to do it in. Uh, but yeah, that's about all I got for you. I mentioned on last week's pod, the Olympics don't really do it for me. Like I, I watch them if it's on, my girlfriend had like the gymnastics on the other night. It was cool. Uh, watched a little bit of water polo. Don't really understand that. Watched some rugby, but I don't have time to make that like appointment television. I haven't really even gotten like into the Olympic golf because uh, I spend a lot of my time podcasting in the evenings after my nine to five, but it's on at such weird hours. I just haven't been able to watch much of it. So not a huge Olympic guy. I think it's cool. I'm probably more into the winter stuff just because if you add snow into the mix of, uh, of sports, I don't understand that kind of appeases my dumb brain. But uh, yeah, outside of that, I, I, uh, I don't have much else for you. So those are my three cities. I guess LA doesn't count, but I do think the LA Olympics in 2028 will be pretty cool. Let's see. What is the next question we have rolling along here? Three sports that should be in the Olympics. Well, the easiest answer got put in the last Olympics. I would have advocated for golf. Um, I don't know, NASCAR racing. Can we get an American flavor? I think it would be hilarious to have like a Belgian NASCAR team or something like that. No F1. I love F1. Gotten into the Drive to Survive documentary, but I'm talking full Americanized, bud heavy NASCAR at the Olympics would be kind of funny. I'm trying to think of another sport that is not in the Olympics. Football. I'm just really going red blooded American male and then hot dog eating. So those are my three answers. That should be in the Olympics, mostly because I can't think of, uh, of really a better example because most of them are already in it. Like you got baseball, you got tennis. Uh, I don't really know like if any weird sports in terms of fencing, uh, table tennis, all that, like that are already in there. I don't know what like sports have got uh, like small sports have gotten snubbed by that. Can we get a pickleball going year 2050 Olympic pickleball? Maybe heard that game's pretty fun. Only played it a handful of times. But uh, that would be kind of a cool one. Uh, that's really all like maybe Olympic disc golf. I know that's all the rage these days. I was into disc golf as a kid at summer camp. Uh, not exactly like following the disc golf pro tour or anything like that, but that might be a cool one. So there's just some suggestions for you. Uh, my man, Mr. TB Bradshaw, who asked this first question, had quite a few. So I'm just going to run down his real quick. Three sports that need to be eliminated from the Olympics, you ask. I, I don't know. I mean, I think part of the appeal of the Olympics is you watch all these weird sports where you don't otherwise understand the rules and like probably didn't even know that sport existed if not for the Olympics. So like, I'm not real keen on, on booting sports out of there. I don't really think baseball makes a ton of sense in the Olympics. I guess it's a global enough game, but like we don't really send our best. I imagine not many other countries do. I don't really know the Japanese baseball schedule in terms of like the Japanese baseball league and how they deal with that in the Olympics, but I don't think they send their top people. And I know the Mexican leagues are going on right now. And I know most of the top Mexican players play in the United States. It's kind of same with Japan too. So like, I don't really understand baseball being in the Olympics per se. Uh, so I guess that's one. And if I have to pick two more, 
I don't know. I mean, water polo. I just saw. I just happened to watch that the other day. I thought that I didn't really understand it. it seemed pretty boring. It seemed you just swim to one side, you chuck it at the goalie as hard as you can, swim to the other side, chuck it at the goalie as hard as you can. A uh, couple penalties in the mix that I didn't understand, but not a ton of violence. I didn't really understand that sport, so that didn't really do a ton for me. So I, I guess I'll throw water polo in there as one that could probably get out of here, and then. Hmm. I don't know. Soccer? I'm just saying that to rile up all the soccer fans that listen to this podcast. I don't actually care. Soccer seems cool in the Olympics. I don't have a third one for you. Top Gun. Why is Top Gun such an awesome movie? Pretty cool. I like Top Gun. Seen it a couple of times. Seemed like a pretty good movie. Favorite Star Wars movie? Not really into the Star Wars. Don't really understand the order. Don't really understand why they made the movies out of order in terms of numbers. Um, you know, for the simple brains over here, that's real confusing to have one through six not be, you know, Star Wars one, Star Wars two, Star Wars three. If you watched it one through six, apparently that doesn't make any sense. But uh, I've never really gotten into the uh, lightsaber, what's the green guy, Yoda game. Just not really my cup of tea. Not judging anyone out there. Just saying, not really up my cup of tea. So uh, I don't know. I don't really have much to that. I don't have a favorite Star Wars movie. I guess I'll go one. Because uh, it's not actually the first movie. So that'll be my favorite Star Wars movie. So I am your father. Let's see. Keeping it moving down Mr. Bradshaw's list of questions. Full moon or new moon? I don't know what that means. Full moon. To hell with it. Full moon's never a bad option, literally or figuratively. Pepsi. Is Pepsi ever okay? Yeah, I know it's a hot take to where it's like classic internet joke is when the waitress says, is Pepsi okay? And then you put some meme that someone's reused 10,000 times and congrats, you got 1,500 likes on a tweet. Pretty sick content. I don't mind Pepsi. I don't really drink it by choice, but like if someone hands me a Pepsi, okay, tastes different. I'm not a big regular Coke guy anyway. I think it tastes too sweet. I actually prefer Diet Coke, uh, not because I'm like watching my figure or anything. I actually enjoy the taste of Diet Coke better than regular Coke. There's a hot take for you. But uh, I'm actually kind of firmly a Dr. Pepper guy. So, like, Pepsi doesn't bother me. I think it's probably fine. Honest to God, I think I'd have a Pepsi over a Coke. So, those of you listening on this fine mailbag Friday who just drove off the side of the road at such a notion, because I know people hate on Pepsi. Not a huge Pepsi guy. Uh, my father actually is. He loves Diet Pepsi of all things. But uh, I think if someone was like, gun to your head, chug one, I think I'd go Pepsi. I think I'd enjoy it more than Coke. So, how about that? But give me a Dr. Pepper every day of the week. Let's see. Why do people pay money for cardboard with marinara and fake cheese at Little Caesars? And tag Little Caesars. Little Caesars in the crosshairs on this Mailback Friday pod. Um, yeah, I don't love Little Caesars pizza, but man, it's a lot of food for five bucks and the sauce doesn't taste terrible, even though there's too much of it. I think Little Caesars' biggest problem is there's entirely too much sauce on it. I don't really mind the bread. I don't mind the cheese as much. Um, because I don't think there's a huge difference between like, say, Papa John's cheese or Little Caesars. I just like went blank there for a second. But I think it's the ratio of the sauce. I think if they actually took it easy on the sauce, which you think they would because they're trying to cut costs or whatever with the whole $5 pizza business model, I just think there's entirely too much of it. So I don't hate Little Caesars. Look, like particularly in college, you don't, I don't cook. I still don't cook. I should probably learn how to cook more things. I've gotten slightly better about that. And by slightly, I mean, I've learned how to work a microwave. 
But like when you're not cooking in college and you need something quick, like that's a go-to move. There's never a wait. You give them five bucks, you get your pizza and walk out. It's honestly very American. So I guess that's why people pay for it. Look, you're not going, you're you're not going into Little Caesars to rate it on the one bite app. Like it, it's scoring in the fours to the fives if if we're going the Dave Portnoy bar store route. But it's the how quickly you get it and how cheap it is. That's why people pay for it. I I don't think that's some shocking concept, but Appreciate the list of questions, my man. We just ran through all of those for you. All right. Wanted to take a quick break to remind you the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, I'm glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. As football season approaches us, these guys are legit. You're going to want to get on the road to profit. You don't want to be paying the man every Sunday. You can't start out your September of football uh, degenerateness by paying the guy three times. Maybe you get a small payout in between. Maybe you're just kicking your teeth. You don't want to do that. Make the man pay you. That's exactly what Skybox does. They've got daily – try daily pass, 10 bucks. Use the promo code RIPBEATS, 8 bucks. Test the water, see what they're all about. I'd recommend – a uh, full year pass of all sports. It'll make its money back and then some, but they've got month-long packages, week-long packages, uh, sports-centric, all sports, anything that'll fit your price range. Uh, Kind of in the doldrums of summer right now, they've got some baseball going on. When the PGA Tour gets cranked back up next week in Memphis, they'll have some picks for that. And then uh, sooner than later, we're going to have some football. And then, of course, NASCAR, their bread and butter, one of their many bread and butters, I should say, uh, is chugging along as always. So check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Use the promo code RIPPY when you do pick a package and you'll get 20% off. So you're making money while making money while making money. Skybox Sports Picks. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Y'all know the deal. Greg's the best. LB's the best place in Mississippi to get meat. Oxford and Mississippi are so fortunate to have a place like LB's. The guy actually cares about you and what you want. He makes quality meat has all kinds of varieties, uh, sausages, whether that's, you know, steaks, Lane Train Special, Keith Carter Special, Wagyu beef, all kinds of stuff. Greg is a culinary uh, genius himself, I should say. I didn't know if I was going to go as far as genius because the man has other interests, but Greg loves grilling, smoking meats. It is in his blood, and he is going to make sure you have a great experience as well. So go try the sausages. Uh, Seafood, if you're a Rippy Wright subscriber, Right now, just for signing up to rippywrites.substack.com, you get a 16-ounce prime strip for 15 bucks, and then a $5 pack of sausage. That's 20 bucks and one hell of a start to the weekend. Go see him and check out everything else he has, too, while you're at it. So check him out, LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Back to Mailback Friday. Keeping it moving. Not a ton of sports-related questions tonight. I guess this is a very July Mailback Friday uh, for sure. Normally, we get a couple of... Uh, Fairly serious sports questions mixed in. Here we go. How many losses do the Rebels have when LSU comes to town on October 23rd? Obviously, an almost certain loss built in going to Bama, but the Arkansas and UT games are intriguing, especially given our past with Arkansas. Appreciate the question, Shad White. Uh, You're a regular submitter, so I really appreciate that. I know you're not the real Shad White. I I think you're not the real Shad White. Uh, If you are the real Shad White, don't look at my taxes. Uh, anyway, so uh, appreciate the question. Uh, let's see. Okay, so October 23rd. So Ole Miss will have played when LSU comes to town October 23rd, and the 
Uh, you know, they probably got a separate bus for the amount of scandals they're bringing with them too. Uh, not a lot of hard-hitting questions asked about that at SEC Media Days, I noticed, uh, as I predicted in my newsletter. So, uh, anyway, be that as it may. Ole Miss will have played Louisville, Austin P, Tulane at Alabama, Arkansas at Tennessee. How many losses will the Rebels have? Well, at least one. You know what? The optimist in me would probably say one. But until I kind of see it and see how Ole Miss looks defensively um, and kind of see what Matt Corral looks like in terms of another year in the system and kind of – and I know that's such a cliche thing to say, but, like, he will have played a road game at Alabama. And I don't think Ole Miss is going to win that game, but did he avoid a five-pick game? Like, you see what I'm getting at? Like, did he – you know, did he kind of – not have a two interception half versus two lane or something to keep them in it. Did he cut down on the turnovers is what I'm getting at. And I know he, like, it's kind of misleading because he had 14 interceptions last year and 11 of them came in eight quarters, but they still count all the same. So like, I'd like to see that first. So I'll say they split Arkansas and Tennessee, but that's probably honest to God, a little bit pessimistic because as you'll hear later in this podcast, uh, Charlie Burris offered a pretty, pretty good breakdown of the uh, kind of dumpster fire that is Tennessee and Josh Heupel has done as well as he can so far without you know playing a game and such and having a fall camp yet to kind of put out the flames and generate a little bit of positive energy and I actually think he's done a very good job with that I, I think you know I don't want to say perfect guy for the job because that's so cliche but they needed a kind of a uber positive guy that was just happy to be there to kind of clean up the mess that Jeremy Pruitt left behind both from an NCAA standpoint even though that was kind of a self-induced mess which we got into later on I don't want to spoil that but like Tennessee was not necessarily furious about the NCAA allegations they kind of used that as a launching point to uh, bury uh, who they saw as an incompetent football coach and Jeremy Pruitt but anyway I, I just Tennessee has too many question marks so like I think Ole Miss will beat them. I think they'll be much better than them. I think, honest to God, there's a chance Ole Miss goes up into that game with the better defense, which, my God, when's the last time Ole Miss has gone on the road in the SEC and been able to say they have the better defense? I, honest to God, believe there's a shot that's the case. So I'm probably being a little bit pessimistic because I do believe Ole Miss will beat Arkansas at home. I think Arkansas's start to last year was a little fluky. If you go look at the statistics, particularly from an uh, offensive standpoint, Arkansas's last, oh, let's just say six games, kind of after they got off to the first four games, you know, oh, they're not terrible. Sam Pittman start. Uh, they really kind of rode that early season momentum, but weren't very good in the second half. And, I mean, hell, Corral threw six picks and Ole Miss was in a one-score game in the fourth quarter with them. So, like, I do think Ole Miss will beat Arkansas, and I think they're much better than Tennessee. So the right answer here is probably one, but I'd like to see it first. Something about Ole Miss going – to Tennessee in mid-October, particularly if Tennessee, you know, gets off to a 3-0 and start, maybe pulls off an upset at Missouri and kind of has a little bit of momentum, that game can turn dicey in a hurry because how many times have you seen a slightly above average team in Ole Miss go to a slightly below average team on the road where the slightly below average team is uh, kind of, uh, you know, the up-and-coming program or kind of getting the program off the ground, first-year head coach, and then they just, you know, blitz the better team because because they have a little bit of momentum couple early turnovers and shit gets hairy I'm rambling but you get what I'm getting at I I, I think of Ole Miss going down to Florida under Jim McElwain in 2015 I know no one wants to like 
relive that game, or I'm probably not as good of an example, but Ole Miss going to Memphis to where like Memphis was not as good of a roster as Ole Miss, but that was a huge game for Memphis. And that was one of Hugh Freeze's like most poorly coached games type of thing. It happens all the time. So like, I'm a little wary of that, but the answer, honest to God, is probably one loss, which is crazy to think Ole Miss might get to the third week of October in year two under Lane Kiffin with one loss. I actually like their chances to do it, but I'll, I'll say two losses just, just until I see it, if that makes sense. So appreciate the question. A little baseball action here from a regular listener, Brent Ferguson. I know you aren't as big of a Cubs fan as before, but what do you think about Rizzo and Chris Bryant leaving? Yeah, man, that sucks. Like, and you're right on the first part of that. And I've gone over this on the podcast before. There's no reason to rehash it. I grew up a pretty big Cubs fan. I don't really know why. My dad was a big Cincinnati Reds fan. And I think I chose the Cubs just to, like, piss him off. That would, that would seem on brand. I've never been known to be an instigator of such. But uh, honestly, like, once I got into, like, college and then started doing the whole media thing and not to do, like, the whole fan media member thing that we kind of do nowadays that seems to have faded out to where it's all just such blurred lines now no one actually cares unless you work at like a Gannett newspaper not throwing shots at anyone you can interpret that what you will but not to be like that guy but honestly covering games like does kind of take the whole like emotional rooting interest thing out of you like I can't really explain it you just become so like jaded and so like cynical and that's kind of your job as a reporter to be kind of uh, productively cynical for the lack of a better phrase or reasonably cynical um, to, you know, ask good questions and do your job. But that really does take, like, the fandom out of you. Like, I couldn't do my job. Uh, I couldn't do my job well if I was emotionally tied up into how Ole Miss was going to do in Starkville in the Egg Bowl. Like, I wouldn't be able to write well. I wouldn't be able to kind of report on the game. And I know that kind of sounds like I'm, like, flexing a big J card that I never had or something like that. But it is true. And so, like, my Cubs fandom really kind of died off, like, as the World Series run happened. I still enjoyed the hell out of the World Series. I had some Cub fans, like, I grew up with that, you know, we really enjoyed that run. We really enjoyed those teams. And KB and Rizzo were a huge part of that. Um, but I would say right after 2016, mine died off pretty quickly because we'd gotten to the mountaintop too, right? Like, I was kind of going into a different phase of working in sports. And, you know, the team I rooted for so hard finally won one. So, like, it was kind of a perfect storm. but be that as it may all that aside and like the Reds internship and all that like it still sucks to see this because and Neil would be way better to answer this than I am and I'm sure he's talked about it on the podcast with Chase but like like they they won one but honest to god like they they didn't have like that second like they didn't have a title defense like I know they made it to the CS the next year I can't remember if they got bounced in the DS or the CS in 17 I want to say it was the DS maybe but they didn't really put up another fight and like become on the precipice of being in the World Series again um to where you really felt like they had a chance to win the whole thing again and so and then the ownership kind of got cheap in the later years and you let Schwarber walk and it just wasn't it, it just didn't sit right and I'm not even like that big of a Cubs fan anymore as I said but it still didn't sit right to me and so I guess the point I'm trying to get is, one, it sucks because those guys provided a lot of great memories to a lot of people. And I don't really understand this whole thing of, hey, this guy that's late 20s or barely 30, let's ship him off because there's a new GM and we just need to start over because God forbid we pay anybody uh, ever. We either have to pay everyone or we're going to be a rebuilding poverty franchise. I don't really understand that, particularly from an organization like the Cubs. 
But that's kind of the nature of Major League Baseball. And honest to God, that's kind of the nature of the Cubs under the Ricketts family. So it sucks. I don't understand it. And I guess that's a long-winded way of saying that despite them winning the World Series, honest to God, my lasting thought about this whole core is what could have been. Because they were so talented those 15, 16 years, and even 17 despite not having uh, some help in some other areas. Like, I, they could have won two or three and been the closest thing you can kind of – you can't really have dynasties in baseball today because you have a contention window and, and then it's done and you're, like, obligated by law to strip it down and ship everyone off. And I, I get there's a strategy to it and there's – GMs are smarter than me and there's a method to the madness. I just don't understand why that has to happen every time. But they could have been kind of the closest thing to a dynasty. Like, tell me why they couldn't have been the – the late 2000s, early 20 teens giants, the 2010, 20, I should have said 2010, 20 teens, 2010, 2014 giants, like 2012, 2014 giants. Like you know what I'm getting at. Why could they not have been that? Um, and I guess their window was about the same, but not really like the giants are back good again. And it's not the same core, but like Brandon Crawford's still playing. Like there's still some guys there. So like, I don't get that. So I guess my honest to God, it sucks at seeing them leave. It's going to be weird seeing Rizzo in a Yankees uniform and Bryant wherever he goes and seeing Bryant kind of soaking it all in and fighting back some emotions in the dugout on Thursday sucked. But I can't believe I'm saying this. They broke out the longest curse in sports, and I swear to God my lasting thought on that whole group and that whole era is what could have been. And maybe that's unfair, but that's the way I see it. Let's see. UT and UT in the same conference. How will the real UT thing play out? Uh, <laughs> I appreciate the question because it is funny. But I don't know. I mean, it's not really feeling like 98 uh, per se in Knoxville. So don't you have to give that to Texas by default? I mean, I've always thought of, I've always thought of Tennessee as UT because I grew up in the SEC footprint and Texas was Texas. And then I kind of like got to college and met some Texas people. And now I live out here and I didn't realize Texas was UT. So I'm still going to go Tennessee. I'll actually give Tennessee the benefit of the doubt, even though Texas, despite not being great in their own right, the last 12 years has been less, less of a dumpster fire than Tennessee. Hell, we went over this in this later interview you're about to hear. And I know I keep teasing it, but like there's an argument to be made. Lane Kiffin is the most competent football hire Oh, nine Lane Kiffin, we're talking. We're talking a couple years away from the tarmac deal and, uh, against USC and a, a, right after he was just Al Davis's public enemy number one with the Raiders. That Lane Kiffin, you could make an argument, that one season was the most competent football hire they've made since. I, I guess Butch Jones had a couple good years, but everyone else has kind of been a clown show. Shout out Derek Dooley in his orange pants. But like, yeah, I'll give, the, I'll give it to Tennessee just because that's what I was used to hearing. But if you want to base it off competency, uh, despite both programs being disappointing in terms of what their fan base thinks they should be, um, I, I guess you would have to give it to Texas. But uh, I'll just give UT the benefit of the doubt because I say UT. Tennessee, the benefit of the doubt just because I, I guess they need something good to happen to them. But uh, I'm sure that will come up. When, you, when Texas and Tennessee play each other for the first time after this realignment deal, which, hell, maybe 2022, the way this is trending, uh, that will definitely be a crappy TV topic. That will be 
block B on Feinbaum right after the lead, which uh, will be just riveting, riveting stuff, let me tell you. So let's see. What has been the best minor league game day experience you have had? I, uh, I am not actually tremendously well-versed in minor league baseball. Uh, and I, I, that's a shame because I love going to minor league games. Like, I think seeing the different stadiums are cool. It's just a very cool vibe. Like, everyone there is very laid back. Nowadays, most of them have a pretty good, like, beer garden, beer selection. Everyone's having a good time because you paid 12 tickets for a pretty good uh, – 12 bucks a ticket for a pretty good fr- product and probably some pretty awesome drink deals and some incredible sideshows, whether it's uh, racing sausages or – people just beating the hell out of each other in those little uh, bubble ball things that they put in the outfield and let each other ram each other. Like all kinds of weird shit happens at minor league baseball games. Uh, But I'm not like well-versed in it. I did the Embraves thing, Jackson Generals when I was real young, Jackson Senators, independent league thing, Uh, Jackson Diamond Cats, independent league. Maybe they were single A. I can't remember if they lasted a year. Only the real ones know about the Jackson Diamond Cats. I bet that's the first Jackson Diamond Cats reference. Uh, on a podcast ever so those of you that know you know uh I lived in Little Rock for a while and did the Travelers game which they have a really cool stadium in Little Rock down by the uh whatever river that is I don't know I'm not a uh, geologist but that was a cool one cool stadium been to the Louisville Bats Memphis Redbirds have a really enjoy our, I love AutoZone Park I think those are incredibly fun games to go to Nashville Sounds have a cool one uh, I think I probably just emptied the holster in terms of minor league venues I've been to. If I had to pick a favorite, it would probably be Arkansas Travelers, which are double A in Little Rock or Memphis Redbirds, just because I really enjoy AutoZone Park. I think it's a cool stadium. Could never host the SEC tournament from a facility standpoint, whether that's media or like the fanfare that comes with it. Uh, like some people wanted to suggest when they keep talking about moving it out of Hoover, but it's still a cool stadium nonetheless. So. Uh, I will probably go Memphis Redbirds. Let's see. Is Texas back? Sure. They just joined the SEC and made everyone more money. So they're back until they lose uh, some non-conference game they shouldn't supposed to lose, and then the head coach becomes really insecure. Although I'm a little bit more bullish on Sark than uh, some people may seem to be. Uh, So, sure, Texas can be back until they lose a game. What role do you see Mark Robinson playing for this defense? That's a great question. And so there's probably, honestly, quite a few of you out there who are still in July mode going, who the hell is Mark Robinson? And there's not a whole lot of reason you should know the name, but if you should, if you look into it, kid's a great story. So he was a way I understand it was he transferred from Southeast Missouri prior to the 2020 season as he was a walk-on or came to Ole Miss as a walk-on but yet was still somehow ruled ineligible and had to sit out. I I think Kiffin actually commented on this a while back. Why in the hell should a walk-on ever have to sit out a year? That doesn't make any sense. If the kid's coming to get the hell beat out of him at an SEC program, can he at least, like, you know, give him the the eligibility just for principle's sake? Like, what? That doesn't make any sense. But anyway, that aside, he was a running back at SEMO and a pretty good one, too, but has moved to linebacker since he played since he moved to Ole Miss and transferred to Ole Miss and kind of turned heads in the spring. He was one of those guys that uh, had a pretty good spring, just kept coming up in press conferences, had a pretty good spring game. And with Jacquez Jones, you know, transferring to Kentucky, you're looking at this depth chart right now. I don't have it in front of me, but I'm just going off the top of my head. You're going to go 
what I guess that would be Chance Campbell and Momo at weak side linebacker, and then Lakia at strong side linebacker, or Mike, whatever the hell you want to call it. Who else is there? I mean, the, whatever position they call Sam Williams and uh, Cedric Johnson, Cedric Johnson, uh, like that to me, that's defensive end. So, like that aside, I know they'll move him around. I know they'll move Johnson around too. But like just talking about those two positions, like true linebacker, who else is there? Like, it, would it be crazy to think that he sees a ton of snaps as Lakia Henry's backup and can kind of move around a little bit? Like, what? I'm trying to, I, I don't have his profile up in front of me but like I'm trying to look at him size wise uh let's see this is great podcasting but in the meantime while I'm trying to like pull up his measurements because I don't know it off the top of my head like who else is there in the cupboard like you know Ole Miss is going to be good on the front end but there are a couple injuries away from looking around at linebacker being like because like look I, I don't know how what I think about the whole Momo Sonogo thing in terms of is he just not the same guy post-injury. I, I just think that – and Weldon hit on this a little bit on the podcast on Monday. Uh, if you haven't gone to listen to that, Weldon Rodenberg, former Ole Miss uh, recruiting specialist who's going to be doing uh, at least one pod a week during the season with us. I'm really excited about that edition. I don't know if you've missed that. But anyway, he was uh, – he was kind of talking about just to really be more being a product of talent getting better around Momo. So let's just say for argument's sake, it's Chance Campbell and Lakia Henry. Who are your backups at linebacker? So Mark Robinson, six foot two twenty. Yeah, that kid could move around the weak side linebacker without a problem. So I guess kind of what I'm getting at. So you have Lakia Henry, you have Momo Sonogo, you have Chance Campbell. Like in terms of linebackers, like who else is going to even be in the mix? Because I think that the, the I think Johnson will be more of a kind of a move around. I mean, how? Like, here's a trivia question for you, and you probably cheated if you listened to the Monday podcast, even though I appreciate it. Who is Ole Miss's second leader in uh, who who was ranked second in sacks for Ole Miss last year? Uh, Cedric Johnson. So like. I think he will be more of like a pass rush kind of hybrid end type of guy, like particularly with Brandon Mack missing the season. So like it's going down the line. Like who, who are you really excited about is as a linebacker, Austin keys. Okay. Red shirt freshman. Like I'd like to see it first. Uh, you know, I've heard about Zy Baker for forever. Uh, got some, you know, he got some playing time more so when the, the, the cover was really, really bare at Ole Miss in terms of like defensive, like I'm talking to early Matt Luke, but like who else is it? Ashanti Sistrunk? Dalen Gill? Like any of those names really being like, yeah, that guy could be could lock him in as a rotation piece. And look, if 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 he impressed as much as the coaching staff let on in spring practice, uh, I think he'll play a pretty big role. I think he'll probably I hate doing snap counts or number of snaps because these offenses change so much, but Oh, if he plays 35% of the defensive snaps on a given game, if he averages that for the year, that wouldn't shock me at all. I think they're definitely going to need him. And for hell, if there's an injury, then it becomes a uh, a Taylor Polk on steroids type of story. I think Mark Robinson's a little better than Taylor Polk. No disrespect to Taylor Polk. He played his ass off. Really cool story in his own right. But, like, I do think there's a chance where he plays a pretty major role for the Rebels in the fall. So, anyway, uh, great question there. 
which now we go to we followed it up with a little bit more of a uh, uh let's confuse Rippy's brain and put it in a pretzel so got to be a little bit of that on the podcast which climate do you think you could survive the longest in desert swamp mountains etc uh can i go ocean could i grow some gills i think i would be a predator in the ocean i think great white sharks would see me swimming and be like get the hell out of this thing's weight what is this physical specimen but uh if we're going land i think i'll go to the mountains i did a story uh when i was a intern at the arkansas democrat gazette where i followed around a group of doomsday preppers i'm not joking uh and we profiled them and uh we probably had a handful of interactions with this group of doomsday preppers uh over the course of about i guess that story took about three weeks there's a uh one of my fellow interns I worked with, really sweet lady named Ginny Monk, who does great work full time at the Democrat Gazette now, was a little more motivated than me. That was my first non-sports role. Um, and that's probably one of the bigger, I don't, I don't want to need to go on this soapbox, but that's probably one of the bigger regrets of uh, my uh, journalism career was not wanting to broaden my horizons when I got to the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, because that's one of the best newspapers in the country. It's one of the only like functional, surviving not hemorrhaging money newspapers in the country, particularly mid-sized newspaper, and they employ a lot of talented people. Uh, I, had a, I had a great boss, uh, Shea Stewart, who now works as a communication specialist for the university. Um, but at that time, I was like student reporter, uh, thought I was kind of hot shit, you know, 20 years old, going to SEC football games, you know, Twitter following back when that mattered, boosting up a little bit. Like I was kind of a cocky, cocky little ass back then I would say it was really feeling my Wheaties and then that was kind of I got stuck in between a couple in limbo in terms of a couple internships I thought I might get and blah 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 I had to make a decision but I wasn't sports so like my first assignment was covering the Miss Arkansas pageant no joke uh and so I wasn't thrilled about that at 20 years old going from uh covering Hugh Freeze's football program to uh to beauty pageants, although there might be more similarities than I once thought with those two, but I'm going to leave that there. I'm not, I'm going to let that fester in your heads a bit. I'm not going to go down that road. Anyway, uh, I, I wish I'd, I'd kind of given a little more effort in, and I didn't mail it in, but kind of been a little more eager to uh, expand my horizons and kind of uh, write things, write about things other than sports. Cause I think that would have been better for me in the moment, but I didn't have the best attitude about it, but great opportunity. Anyway, that was a rant. I followed around a group of doomsday preppers and it was this joint story I worked on with this other uh, intern and they, uh, those people are something else. Uh, it's honestly kind of sad sometimes. Like a lot of it stems from like them having a traumatic event in life uh, happened to them, whether it was, you know, one I think was pretty close, close to like not to get dark, but like a drive by shooting and various other things. And uh, it like triggers something in them to always want to be prepared for something they can't control. But anyway, they would go store stuff like up in the hills. So, like, apparently, if, like, there's the apocalypse coming or something, hills, hilly, mountainous areas are apparently the way to go. I don't think that you want the mountains to be too tall because, you know, avalanche, uh, that type of stuff. Not really an expert on, like, plate tectonics. I'm just saying these people, you know, they had supplies. One of them had a vest. They seemed like they knew what they were doing. Uh, Recommended the hills. So I'll go the mountain country. Couldn't do desert. The heat would kill me. Uh, swamp, not a great swimmer, don't really do snakes. So uh, I'm going to go mountains. I think I could survive the longest in a mountain. Find you a nice little uh, crevice, cave, 
uh, you know, live off the land for a bit, go find some fresh water streams, do some hunting. I think, uh, I think I could survive in the mountains for longer. Uh, so that was a terrible answer. Sorry, but whatever you asked the question. If you had to compete in an Olympic sport, which would you be least embarrassed the least in? Okay. Good question here. So Olympic sport embarrassed the least excluding golf. Wow. Oh, you stole my answer. Okay. Um, fencing. I don't know the rules, but if someone's pointing something sharp and pointy at me, uh, eventually instincts and in fight or flight mode is going to kick in. So, uh, you know, despite my size and, you know, athleticism, you know, you give me a blade and I could probably hold my own for a while. So I think I could maybe do the whole fencing thing. I know there's a lot more rules. I would get DQ'd, but I'm not sure how embarrassed I would be uh, by getting DQ'd, particularly if I got a couple of nice whacks on the other guy uh, or swings. We'll go swings for the phrasing purposes. Uh, so fencing maybe? Um and I couldn't do tennis. I couldn't do golf. Excuse me, golf. Soccer. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a pretty decent ping pong player. No, don't get me wrong. I think I would get waxed by Olympic ping pong players. I don't think. I know I would. But, like, could I lose 11-5, 11-5, 11-5, and it looks somewhat respectable? Maybe. Uh, and I'm just not getting torched from an athleticism standpoint on the ping pong table or table tennis. See, I'm already, actually, I'm already embarrassing myself by calling it ping pong. I don't think they like that in the Olympics. So table tennis is one. Uh, yeah, I'm not hopping on a skateboard. I had one as a kid, sucked at it. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's probably it. Water polo, no thanks. Uh, swimming, don't really do that. Oh, I can swim, but I don't do like competitive swimming. No, thank you. So, yeah, gymnastics. I mean, that's the most – talk about the most humbling sport to watch. Watching uh, gym, gymnasts do their thing at the Olympics is mesmerizing. You want to talk about feeling athletically inferior, holy cow. So, obviously, I didn't even need to mention that. That's out the window. Just no shot there. Talk about raw athleticism. My God. Um, so, not that. Yeah, I'm gonna, probably going to go fencing or ping pong, uh, mostly because I don't know a ton of the other sports. Uh, I've heard handballs in the Olympics. I don't really know what that entails, but uh, I feel like I could hit a ball with my hand. I feel like I could get the basic premise down. Uh, so I'll go. I'll throw that one in there. That'd be my three answers. Keeping it moving. Underrated, overrated bar food. Uh, this is really just a matter of personal preference, but uh, I love a good set of cheese fries. Like. You know, if you're having some drinks over a, a basketball game, a football game, whatever, if you're watching a game at a bar and you maybe don't necessarily want meal, uh, cheese fries are the way to go. I love some nice, like, appetizer wings, but that can get kind of messy, uh, particularly if you're going to go do something else afterward. You know, you, you drop a wing, you got it on your shirt. Now it looks like you had a stroke. Go into the bathroom. Uh, it's in the lower shirt area. You dab it with water. Now it looks like you peed yourself. A lot of problems can happen with the wings. So cheese fries are an easy one, uh, cheese sticks, fried pickles, any things of that nature, to quote the great, late, I, the late great, Stephen A. Smith, not just the great Stephen A. Smith, not the late, last time I checked. Uh, so those are a couple good ones. I'll go cheese fries off the top of my head. It's a pretty good favorite one. Most overrated bar food? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, 
I love raw oysters, but there's a lot of bars that have like really crappy fry, excuse me, raw oysters, crappy raw oysters, fried oysters, I guess you could kind of put in the mix here too. Um, so that, if that counts as bar food, um, I'm not a huge like bar burger guy. It's usually massive. I usually can't eat all of it. So now I'm just stuck with this to go box. So like, I don't get me wrong. I like hamburgers. But like your typical bar food hamburger, it's just kind of a lot. Like I can smash through some chicken tenders, wings, despite it being messy, uh, a couple other things, maybe like club sandwich. But like for whatever reason, my experience with bar burgers, unless it's like sliders, have always just been, I have half of this leftover, don't really know what to do with it, taking it home, half time it doesn't make it home, leave it in the Uber, uh, drop it walking outside, all kinds of things that can happen. So overrated bar food i'll go bar burgers how about that for the lack of uh for the lack of a better answer i guess so bar burgers is going to be a big one there probably is over a couple more before we get to the interview with charlie burris here uh let's see making sure i haven't missed anyone oh best restaurant in arlington that isn't too expensive my wife and sister will be there tomorrow and need recommendations. Uh, honestly, I wish I could help you out a little bit more. So uh, I probably repeated this way too many times on the podcast, but I do live in Arlington. I live uh, kind of off the main road uh, that goes, it's called Collins Street, goes past like the Rangers and Cowboy Stadium. I'm probably a mile and a half from both, but I don't spend a ton of time in Arlington. My girlfriend lives in Fort Worth, pretty cool city, and my friends most of my friends are in the Dallas area uptown something like that so I'm kind of like as a tweener right now like so I don't spend a ton of like time doing social things in Arlington and honestly and maybe I'm just not doing the Arlington scene right it just seems like a lot of chains like a lot of Hoover like Hoover if you ever been to Hoover it has every chain restaurant you could ever imagine it, it should be the chain capital of the world they should put up a sign no one's going to question that you see those cities that are like we're the blank capital of the world and it's like really like did you get certified like who, who's checking you on that where's the fine print they could put up a sign Hoover or Arlington could just say chain capital of the world so it's like a lot of chain restaurants so like I honestly don't have a ton of good recs for you in terms of like the best places to eat in Arlington. Like I, I wish for you, I tipsy Oak is a pretty good, like indoor outdoor place. That's pretty versatile. It has a pretty good brunch, has a good lunch, nice little outside spot. That's not really far from like the stadium area and all that. I don't know what your wife and uh, say wife and mother-in-law, wife and sister, whatever, whatever. I don't know what they're doing in Arlington, but tipsy Oak, is a cool little local spot and actually kind of a cool area um, that I think would be pretty good. Social House is another like brunch place that's not so bad. Uh, but like, I swear, I think the last time my girlfriend and I ate in Arlington, I think we went to the Cheesecake Factory. So like, I, uh, I don't have a ton of restaurant wrecks in Arlington. If you want to venture off into Fort Worth and Dallas, I could help you out there. Um, but yeah, I, I, this is not going to be a good answer just because I'm, I'm, I'm not great with the uh, Arlington Rex, but my God, any sort of fast food you want, just go to Collins Street in Arlington. It has every single thing you could possibly want from a chain restaurant perspective. Uh, chains I've never even heard of till I got here. It's pretty wild. So I hope that helped a little bit. If they're looking for another like quicker brunch place, there's a biscuit bar here that's pretty solid. Uh, 
couple pizza joints. I'm trying to think Zalot may be one of them, I think is what it's called. So I don't have a ton of great wicks for you in Arlington. And uh, honest to God, I've, I've lived here long enough. I think it just might be uh, that, that that's kind of just the way it is. Um, Piccolo Mondo, I've heard is a pretty good Italian place. I've never been there. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, yeah, that's really about it. I mean, Tom's Burgers, David's Barbecue were two more. That's really about all I can think of. So uh, good luck. And uh, if you get the craving for fast food, let me tell you, pal, this is the place to be. I think that was all of the mailbag questions we had. Uh, oh, no, we got a couple more. What's a brand you're loyal to but can't explain why? Can't explain why. Hmm. That's a good one. It's probably golf-related. Um, I'm not a big brand guy. Like, I just kind of wear whatever comfortable. I really like Asics shoes, but that they're pretty comfortable shoes. I don't really know if that counts. I uh, like Peter Millar shirts, but, like, they make a pretty solid shirt. Like, there's certainly a reason for it. I'm not sure if there's one I can't explain why. Uh, I play a lot of Callaway golf balls. That's just because my dad is a big Callaway guy. Like, he, he's, he's very particular about that. So I get a lot of uh, uh, you know, free excess golf balls per se. So, uh, you know, like, I guess I've been asked a time or two, it's like, why do you always play Callaway? It's like, cause they're free or they're cheaper. Uh, so maybe that's one, but I can't really think of one off the top of my head that I'm just all over. The only thing I get really like get loyal to like, like that, like in that sense is like beer, but there's also a reason for that. So I can't think of one there. Don't have a good answer for you. The last question we had, our man's checking back in. I don't really understand what's going on here. We're going to have to get IT on this. Maybe the uh, someone else in the podcast listenership could explain this to me. Uh, Ian Moon, who I'm pretty sure is a fake Twitter account. I cannot even believe I'm dignifying this with the answer. Joined November of 19, no followers, follows me, profile picture. Uh, doesn't appear to be him because I believe that's a cat. Uh, maybe it is a cat. Maybe posable thumbs. I don't know. 2021, identify with whatever you want to be. Uh, Checked back in a week after asking me if I've ever woken up naked after a night out, uh, which apparently was a loaded question because he responded this week with, I know what you did when you blacked out, quote, I'm telling everyone. So maybe my Sunday scaries formed a Twitter account and it's just really screwing my head. I, uh, I don't really know what we got going on here. So uh, our man's checking back in. Uh, I don't know if this is a extortion type of thing, but uh, – Feel free. I don't know. I, maybe I did. I don't know. I don't remember being naked at any point in college or high school, but hey, whatever. So that's that. That's a great note to uh, get into this interview on. So that was a fantastic end to just what I'm sure was a solid Mailback Friday segment that everyone loved and did not get bored with. So anyway, now we're going to transition to Charlie Burris of A to Z Sports, host of the Big Orange Podcast. Great conversation. Learned a lot about Tennessee their NCAA troubles. A lot of parallels with Ole Miss in this. So uh, buckle up there because uh, Tennessee is kind of what Ole Miss was about four years ago, and that's a mess. But I think they hired a decent coach, and then we got into a little bit of what they will be on the field in 2021, the Ole Miss-Tennessee game, and a lot more. So uh, thanks for participating in Mailbag Friday. And without further ado, here is Charlie Burris. All right, we now welcome on Charlie Burris of A to Z Sports, a host of the Big Orange Podcast. Uh, we're going to talk some Tennessee as we kind of continue our season preview coverage 
of Ole Miss's 2021 SEC opponents. I really appreciate the time, man. I'm, uh, I was excited to catch up. Uh, I really appreciate a moment of your time. Absolutely. Happy to do it. So, I guess just kind of getting right into it, I, Ole Miss and Tennessee, if you took Ole Miss three years ago, maybe four, it's kind of in a similar like position as Tennessee finds itself in now. You have this very odd – I guess minus the sex scandal. So no. minus that, you could throw that out of the way. They're in pretty similar positions in terms of you have this weird NCAA cloud kind of hanging over you. Um, Ole Miss wasn't really thrilled with their coach because they hired from within with Matt Luke and just kind of the, the great unknown that is associated with that. Uh, here's a great question that I'm sure is very easy to answer. How would you describe the state of Tennessee football as it stands currently? Oh, man. That's a uh... – Complicated question. Uh, uh, I mean, it is better right now than I thought it might be because you just have, starting with uh, Lane Kiffin in 2009, or really, I guess, the firing of Phil Fulmer and then the hiring of Lane Kiffin and then Lane Kiffin leaving. From that point, it's just been nightmare after nightmare after nightmare after nightmare. And this one was really just a beautiful cherry on top of that whole horrific situation. Uh, yeah, with the NCAA investigation now, and now an NCAA investigation that if Pruitt had done the things that he did now, uh, they would be legal because uh, he could just, you know, get a sponsorship deal for his kids. So that's stupid. But nonetheless, we, they needed to get rid of Pruitt anyway because he was a horrific coach. But, um, yeah, I mean, it just – I had no confidence in Tennessee's uh, admin. They made a good AD hire, incredibly, um, it, it seems at least. And then uh, he made a made a friend hire in Heupel. But Heupel, a guy with multiple years of head coaching experience, and that's good. He brings a nice, peaceful presence, I, I would say. That's how I would characterize it. Is it super exciting? Is it like when we hired Lane Kiffin in 2009? And, you know, he brought this swagger and this awesome, you know, no, it's not like that at all. And I think to a certain extent, that's sort of what Tennessee fans are looking for right now. They don't want anything exciting. And, well, I mean, we want things that are, that are exciting, but you don't want anything to, to rock the boat. You just stop with all the nonsense and, and let's just have, have a nice rebuild without all the turmoil, all the crazy lists, let's, let's get back to nine wins. That's, that's all I'm thinking right now. Just get back to a sense of normalcy, and then we can go from there. And I think Heupel, Heupel brings that so far, and, and he's, you know, there hasn't been a ton, ton of controversy. I'm, I'm fine with it, but is it inspiring? No. Yeah, and so that's what's been, you know, the, the downward spiral of how all of that turned about was so rapid, um, at least from an outsider's viewpoint, that it's still kind of staggering to look back on now because, you know, I mean, what – I guess what would you have to have had someone pay you, you know, the day after Tennessee beats Indiana in the bowl game to cap off the 2019 season that, you know, 12, 13 months later, whatever the actual date is, that Pruitt wouldn't be the head coach? Like, you probably wouldn't have believed that. In your mind – so they go into the 2020 season. I know you have the weird COVID year and, you know – I felt like the whole COVID season was like, if you had a good season, then it works in your favor. If you had a bad one, it's kind of like a, uh, I guess a somewhat uh, non-adjudicated mulligan to where it could come back to use against you if you have a couple more. But in the moment, it's kind of like whatever it won't be held against you. 
they go three and seven. It seemed like the Kentucky game was really the start of a downward spiral. But just in your mind, like, where did all of this start? Because once it started, it seems like it picked up speed very rapidly. Well, it, it's it started all the way back with the hiring of Philip Fulmer and then Philip Fulmer deciding to hire Pruitt. I, you know, you, you could play that game. But, yeah. I, you know, it was, to me, the way that I characterized just on our podcast, talking about on the radio and stuff, it, it really was that Kentucky game. I think that's the right characterization of the situation. Like, I, I could say I personally, in my analysis – after that, I was like, it's, it's over. It's over for this guy. You, you know, you, you can't lose to Kentucky by 30 at home and expect to continue to coach football at the University of Tennessee. That's ridiculous. It's stupid. Um, and, and, you know, we should have seen more the previous year because, yeah, he won eight games, but none of it was particularly convincing. They just squeaked by in so many of these. And in a lot of, against a lot of teams that ended up weren't very good. You know, you could, should have seen more of the writing on the wall, but as a, as a beaten down Tennessee fan right now, you just want to see good stuff. And hey, eight wins is eight wins. You hadn't seen that in a minute, and that was cool. Uh, and so maybe you ignored some of the lackluster points with with Pruitt. But yeah, I mean, you just saw it. Like the guy was just not not a leader of men that, that you needed. You know, he, it just turned out that he just was, he's not that guy. He's just not a head coach. The way that I, I characterized it in, in postmortem was that he is a good coach. He is not a good head coach. Like he, he was fine as, as a DC. Of course he was a, a defensive coordinator with a national championship Florida state team with a national championship Alabama team. I mean, that's gotta be nice when Nick Saban stacks the cabinet full of six star guys. And then you can just go out there, throw them out there. And basically they'll do whatever you want at the highest level. That must be real nice. Um, but it turns out he just didn't have what it took. They, they had, they had to get rid of him. No matter. I mean, this is the A stuff. In my opinion, it was an excuse. They they came up with something so they didn't have to pay this clown a giant buyout. And that's, hey, fine. I think he's still going to get some nominal amount of money, probably in legal proceedings after the fact. It seems like he's still coming for it. Uh, and he probably should. Uh, but, yeah, th this whole thing, Tennessee shot itself in the foot and in order to get rid of a crap coach. And you can debate all day long whether that was worth it. Maybe they should have just – I mean, in my opinion, walking into the tunnel after the Kentucky game, you should have been met by the AD and fired. But here we are. Uh, it just – it just tracks with the whole history of everything at Tennessee, though, that this – it can't be easy. You're not going to do it. You're not going to do it the easy way at Tennessee. That's not what we do. And, and so, hopefully, what I've said of Heidel, if he can be a nine-win guy, and make the job better for the next guy. That's what I wanted out of Butch. Butch could have been that guy if they would have, if Tennessee would have been honest with itself after he lost to Vandy in 2016. You know, you start out five and zero. I don't know if Ole Miss fans really realize this. You start out five and zero, and and then it just total total collapse at the end of that season. If they would have been honest with themselves and said, "Thanks, Butch, good season. You won nine games. You're out. We're done." If they would have done that and been proactive rather than being reactive when he pile drives the program into the ground next year. I think you're in a much different position right now because you would have been able to hire a better coach. 
during a better time with better circumstances, but that's not, you know, Tennessee doesn't do that stuff. And, and yeah, it's, it's uh, the situation that we always find ourselves in and that I know that's a long winded way. I'm going around in a bunch of circles because I'm so cynical about all this, but that, that is, that's, that's just the way it is. Now you hit on a couple of really fascinating points there. And the first one I'd just kind of add on is, you know, you mentioned like him Pruitt, Pruitt being a good coach, but not being a good head coach. And I think a lot of people, particularly someone that doesn't necessarily follow Tennessee football and is an outsider is that was the first time he'd been a head coach at any level. You know, everyone like used to throw and passing out the whole, well, he was at Hoover two days. Well, he was Rush Probst's defensive coordinator. Like that was literally the first time Tennessee the Tennessee job was the first time he'd ever been a head coach, like at any level. And you could tell it from day one. So like I was a reporter in a past life for about six years. And like, you know, eventually, and I, I wasn't even in it that long and I don't consider myself to be any sort of genius, but you can tell that charisma matters to some degree. And Pruitt didn't have that from day one. His press conferences were kind of odd. Like he was tried to do the whole Nick Saban, like secrecy card, which Lane Kiffin does a little bit. But if you don't have, like, the charisma of, like, oh, that's just how he is type of thing, it's like, okay, what, what's this guy's deal? And it just seemed very odd, his media dealings and everything from the start. But he recruited pretty well. He did everything, like, the by-the-book coaching stuff. I know it's kind of ironic to say by-the-book when he kind of caused an NCAA investigation. But the, the by-the-book checkboxes recruits well pretty good schematically like he did all of those things well but I think he's a prime example that the other shit matters like you like to some degree it's not everything and I think the best way to kind of spin that part of it forward is exactly what you hit on in the second part of that is so you know Ole Miss held on to Hugh Freeze to the bitter end and you know as explosive and as much of as kind of a media mudslinging thing as that became how do you freeze not called an escort service on a university cell phone? There's actually a better chance than not he would have survived what seemed like the NCAA case of the century if you read USA Today. Like, you know, he ended up with the suspension or whatever. And But if he had stayed the head coach at Ole Miss, the, the punishment probably would have been a little harsher. But I don't – I mean, he didn't get a show cause. Like, he would have still been there. And so I guess what I'm getting at is if Pruitt had been 9-2 and two, or 10 and whatever the 10 game season, if he went eight and two, I, that was my next question, but you already hit the nail on the head with it. You're saying you, you thought that was a, it's not a, like a cop out. It was, they took an opportunity to rid themselves of a guy that they thought was incompetent. And they left at the first opportunity because from what you make it sound like, like I mentioned, if he's eight and two, they're probably not firing him. What is your coach? really worth to you was what Tennessee was weighing and they you know they saw okay this is going nowhere are we gonna are we gonna potentially take an NCAA hit for an idiot or we could go down this road and just do it and and I think that is the situation that they found themselves in and and I think if he was yeah if he had if he had won nine games last year I don't think because this is getting into the weeds of that situation. What supposedly happened, reportedly, was that just sort of quietly behind the scenes, somebody came to compliance and said, hey, this stuff is going on, and, and was a whistleblower of sorts. I don't think that ever happens if, if the program is headed in the right direction. I think things were going sour. Pruitt's, Pruitt was very much disliked by the people that worked for him. Uh, and, and, you know, I think 
I, I think a lot of people who work for Nick Saban dislike Nick Saban, but Nick Saban is going to pay you a bunch and he's going to win national championships and add that to your resume too. So uh, it, nobody says anything. Um, and so Pruitt was not that. He sucked and he was a jerk. And so somebody came and, and said, hey, this stuff is going down in Tennessee. Yeah, I mean, I think they just sort of got faced with the situation where they said, this stuff is going to get reported to the NCAA anyway. We got to do something. And we're not going to stick by a guy who stinks at coaching. And so that's, that's what it appears the situation was. And, yeah, I, I will say of that, that Hugh Freeze situation, I certainly took amusement in it outside looking at it as a third party. While at the same time, I am unbelievably cynical about the NCAA. And I loved seeing Ole Miss go, let's screw you. I'm, we're not, we're going to stick by our guy who beat Alabama two years in a row. And this is, you know, they tried to the bitter end. And then, yeah, it came unraveled with the whole calling escorts or whatever, unfortunately. Uh, and I, I think I like that really would have worked out. I think I'm with you. I think that would have still worked out. He probably still misses coach if that doesn't end up happening. Cause I think he would have had, he would have been sort of the wheel way to football where LSU has just gone, you know what, come and take it. Like, Will Wade's winning all these games. We're not going to fire this guy. We're just not. Like, you can come. The NCAA now is just so so useless and so powerless and just a, a weak nothing of an organization that these schools, I mean, they're just going, ah, you know, whatever, unless the FBI is literally going to come knock down our door like they have at some of these schools over the, over the basketball stuff. <laughs> you know, we're not going to fire these guys. And I, like – Pruitt was not worth that. Tennessee was never going to do that with the way they were working out with Pruitt. And I think in the end, as of right now, I think all this will end up being for the better because Tennessee avoided a buyout, uh, or at least most of the buyout, depending on how it plays out. And, you know, they got a guy that seems like a decent coach, especially if he can get you back to that middle middle ground, and then even better if he can get you to, to a championship level. We'll see. Two more things before we kind of get into to, to hypo and kind of the 2021 season. You make an extra interesting point there. We're like, so Ole Miss, you know, you see all these schools now kind of telling the in-save to, to go kick rocks. And Ole Miss's issue, at least internally, was it had incompetent leadership. It had a bad chancellor that tried to stick his nose into everything. And they had an average AD in Ross Bjork that couldn't overcome a really terrible boss. But, you know, early on in the process, Ole Miss was touting this exemplary cooperation term that's in this NCAA bylaw – or not bylaws, whatever, handbook, whatever the hell you want to call it. They have a sweet graphic on their website. But they realized way too late that the way to do this is not to hand over university-issued cell phones in a box to NCAA investigators. It's to tell them to screw off and then lawyer up. And they did that later on in the process a little bit, but it was too late. And Hugh Freeze is a good example of the other side of the Pruitt coin to where – I'm not even sure Ole Miss wanted to stick by him a lot of the time. He won them a Sugar Bowl for the first time, you know, in three, four decades, whatever. So they felt like they had to. And then once they realized, okay, actually, you know, the 2016 season was bad. They're tuning him out. Like, I think he would have eventually been fired for other reasons anyway, even if it wasn't for the NCAA stuff. But they just had reached the point of no return. Them firing him in the summer of 2017 without the escort thing, I don't know if you not sure would have done them any favors, which is kind of interesting the Tennessee aspect of me, does the NCAA take that in consideration? And the answer to that question is no one knows because no one knows how they come up with this punishment matrix. Like they have a design. They don't really follow it. Like none of it makes any sense whatsoever, but I will be interested to see 
if he, they take that into account. And so I guess the, the last thing I have on the NCAA part of it is Ole Miss had two very public notice of allegations where you knew what the violations were. You knew they were level one, level two, and had a second one come out. Um, the university held released both of them at, at a certain point. What's interesting to me at this juncture about the Tennessee part of it is no one seems to know exactly what this is. And that also kind of, to me, serves as evidence that it, like you mentioned, someone went inside just said, hey, this is happening. Let's go and kind of use this because it's going to come out to some degree anyway. Do you find it odd that no one knows exactly what the violations are? Yeah, I – and I really wonder – Tennessee has been really hawking on all of this NIL stuff, I think, because it, it's such an opportunity for a school that's in a crap spot to gain an advantage right now. Because Tennessee – I mean, you look, Tennessee sort of out of nowhere – suddenly is in the front of the line for the number three player in America who's the number one player in the state of Tennessee. All of a sudden, he's moving to Knoxville, and he's almost, almost – I don't know. I don't want to speak out of turn, but all the reports are that he's almost definitely going to commit to Tennessee. That's crazy. Tennessee's a dumpster fire right now, and the, like, number three player in America is going, hey, I'll come to Tennessee, and it's because with this NIL stuff, I think this is my analysis, although he is not – the player has not said this. I mean, the kid is going to come here, be a huge celebrity. He's going to be beloved. He's going to get probably hundreds of thousands of dollars in endorsement deals. And and it's all above board, and it's not this shady underground thing. And Tennessee has really pushed on that because I think they saw a competitive advantage that they could finally get rather than just having every single player from this state that's any good go to Clemson or Alabama. I mean, that's just what's been happening the last few years. And – so they were already hawking on that. And I wonder if in this situation they are hoping, sort of hoping against hope, that by the time things come around on this investigation, that the NCAA essentially can't do anything. That they're just kind of assuming, like, we're close to the NCAA being essentially fully irrelevant. Maybe this just takes their legs fully out from under them and then – they really can't do anything to us in the future. I don't know. I, I certainly would not assume that myself, I don't think. I think it'll take a little bit longer than that probably to, to get rid of them. But I uh, maybe that's a factor. But it it is weird, that whole situation where, yeah, I, I guess I said earlier, Tennessee kind of shot itself in the foot, but they really shot themselves in a foot with a caliber of gun that they're not really sure could be a bazooka. There could be a pea shooter. I don't know. We're not really sure. <laughs> and so uh, that is – it's it's – and, I mean, some of the reports have been that it is, like, multiple – is it – which is the worst? Level one violations? Multiple level one and, and some some stuff like that, supposedly. But I don't know if Tennessee turns around now and goes totally tight-lipped and we're not cooperating anymore and you can kiss our butt, or if they go full cooperation, here's what we know, just do do what you have to do, and hopefully you're powerless by the time this comes out. Nobody really knows, and they're kind of trying to keep it close to the vest. Obviously, the AD that oversaw all of that is no longer here. They got a new guy, and so who knows what he's thinking about the whole thing. Um, it's And it's, it's messy, but clearly – I think if you if you send the right message to these kids, Tennessee is still is a brand with a fan base that is so rabid and, and honestly powerful. There's a lot of really wealthy, really powerful guys in the Tennessee fan base that with something like these NIL rules available to those people now, 
it really changes things for Tennessee, and it really couldn't have come at a better time for them. And it appears they're going to try their best to take advantage of it. What the impact of those sanctions will be, your guess is as good as mine. But I think right now Tennessee is like out of sight, out of mind. If we got to forfeit a bowl game this year, hopefully we just don't even make a bowl game and we can just do it that way, you know. Like, I'm sure there's some kind of attitude like that. So, it, it really just comes down to wait and see, honestly. Yeah, and that was going to save you the trouble of going through because you're talking to an audience that's well-versed in every NCAA term you can imagine. Level one, level two, lack of institutional control. I promise you everyone listening to this, like, is well aware of it because oh, Miss's thing lasted, you know, over half a decade. I mean, that thing was literally a six-year-long colonoscopy of the football program. And so I would argue that in that Tennessee should do exactly what you said in the latter half of that is now just say kick rocks like none of like I'm tight lipped like you can kind of go screw yourself because you to that was a great analogy with the gun where you shoot yourself and you don't know what kind of gun it is. Uh, the NCAA is kind of the same way in the sense of like if you ask them, hey, just you know punish us with whatever you got to shoot us with, then we'll take it. Well, you don't know if that shit's going to be a pea shooter or bazooka, and half the time they don't know either. They just kind of grab something out of the arsenal and shoot. Because if you look at the, every major NCAA case for 15 years, the, North Carolina had kids taking fake classes and never got punished for anything. And Ole Miss gave kids free pizza and had a bunch of dudes sleeping on couches and allegedly gave less money to Leo Lewis than State did and got a two-year bowl ban and whatever scholarships. Like, it makes no sense. So trying to guess that, like, makes no sense. So that all that aside, the last thing I have before we kind of get to, like, hypo in the 2021 season, the structure at Tennessee in terms of, who is in charge, not literally, like athletic director-wise, like who is actually making the decision and pulling the strings is fascinating to me. Because Ole Miss has a very long history of dysfunction. They have a very long history in the athletic department of not great leadership. But then you look over at Tennessee over the last 15 years, and it's, it's kind of that on steroids to some degree. I mean, look at the 2017 coaching search and that whole circus. We don't have to rehash all that. But Fulmer essentially staged a coup to get that job and then hired his guy, which I didn't hate the Pruitt hire given the circumstances. Like, I don't even know where I'm going with this. I guess the way I'll preface this to you is about as open-ended as I can. Do you think something has fundamentally changed now with the kind of the good old boy Fulmer thing out of there? And, like, what do you think has to change to get Tennessee back to competency? I'm not even talking about just getting back to New Year's Six Bowls and all that. Just operating efficiently, operating like Auburn and Alabama do instead of like Ole Miss does, I guess, for the lack of a better comparison. Like, what has to happen administration-wise or booster-wise? I think the hiring of Danny White. Great hire. Great Should. Should. Big big asterisk next to the word should. Uh, Because the key here. Should help with this. I also think an interesting wild card in this whole situation is the university president, Randy Boyd, who is himself a mega donor who was appointed president temporarily, supposedly temporarily, although it's an open contract at the moment. Uh, and I mean, Randy Boyd, a guy who's just ultra wealthy, ran for governor of the state of Tennessee, failed, and then turned around and was like, oh, could I be the university president? And they were like, uh, yeah, sure, whatever. And they brought him in and that's an interesting element in the whole thing because one of the the guys in the room making key decisions at the university is a mega donor like that's an outlier right there i and, and the, ch- the chancellor seems competent i i you know you could 
take a guess as to how much they really play into that whole scenario, but I think the AD and the president here because Boyd has been heavily involved in donor stuff in the past before he was ever president is a weird outlier. Beyond that, you have the Haslam family, who, if you watch NFL football, you know, has screwed <laughs> over the Browns for millennia now. Um, and they're, I mean, they're Tennessee's biggest donor. They're billionaires who think that they run the place. And, and they always, they stick their nose into everything and they, you know, they lend the family plane and do everybody favors and blah, blah, blah. So they think they wield all the power and to some extent they actually do. And I, I, it's so, it's honestly, honestly so hard to say because it's just been so messy in the past. I truly hope so. I mean, the, the last time that things went well, we had an AD with a backbone and I think with Danny White, you have that again. He seems very competent. He ran a, a huge athletic department at UCF. And I am, I'm not sure people know that. One of the biggest universities in America with a pretty big fan base, even though they're a power player. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's massive. And it, even though it's a group of five school. Um, and I, I hope that there are people in place now that can look at these ornery donors because it goes beyond assets. Let's also say that it goes beyond them to all of the meddling and everything. Um, and hopefully you can have an AD and a president who look at those people and go, no, like, no, we're not doing, we're not doing this stuff. We're moving in one direction. We're going this way. And, and hopefully it can get worked out because honestly, like Heupel and this new staff has to be shielded from the craziness that just, it's so key to all of this that he has a true opportunity to do what is right by this program because damn it if these fans don't deserve everything good that could ever possibly happen they've put up with miles and miles of garbage over the last 15 years and i just ah they they deserve to have something actually good happen and I hope this is the turn corner. If I had the prescription, I would be the AD or whatever. You know, it just, it's, there's so many layers to it that you would just have to unpack. And it sounds like old Ole Miss, it, it could be a similar situation at, at so many of those schools. And when you see, I mean, you just don't ever see that type of stuff with Alabama. You don't ever see that type of stuff at, at their ultra successful schools. They just, they got it wrapped up tight. And even if those, the, they, it gets messy behind the scenes. You don't ever know about it. Like, I, I just maybe we need to go to Alabama and be like, teach us. What do you? What do we have to do? Because you, you're doing it. You know, you you turn around. Even in basketball, they go and they hire Nate Oates, and he, you know, he could beat Rick Barnes in year one. Even though Rick Barnes put together phenomenal basketball teams, like, I, it's so maddening, and. It, it is, I, oh, man, who knows? I'm just speechless as far as it goes to that type of stuff. It's so frustrating. I think having an AD with the backbone is is probably the biggest key because, you know, I I imagine you're not like super plugged into Ole Miss, but Ole Miss, like, they don't have a president, so they just have a chancellor. Well, the last guy was this big, like, science geek who wanted to stick his nose into sports, even though he didn't have any, like know anything about sports. That's how Ole Miss ended up with Matt Luke and Ross Bjork just didn't really, I don't, I don't know the situation that closely in terms of like what actually the power dynamic was, but I did, 
I know that Ross Bjork did not either have the ability or the stones to just kind of tell this guy to go stay in his little chancellor's house and to leave him the hell alone and leave this shit to him. And that caused a lot of problems, whether it was the Matt Luke era or they're kind of both impending firing. But then Ole Miss's next chancellor was the guy who they paid $87,000 to conduct the search for the next chancellor and then hired himself and then didn't see any reason why he should give back the money. With that said, as unpopular as that was, he's kind of stayed in the shadows to a degree and kind of minded his own business. And Ole Miss hired an AD in Keith Carter who is making dynamic decisions would be the best way to describe it. He hired Lane Kiffin, which he called a power move and needed to make a splash. Like he was pretty open about that. He doesn't always make the right one. They're the story for another day, but like they're not happy with the way the fans aren't happy with the way he's handled the baseball coaching thing, but not a major thing. He's not afraid to make hard decisions. And I think when you have an AD with a backbone, like you said, that goes a long way to rectify things. And so transitioning that, I guess, into like this year, you know, Danny White hired his guy. And given the weirdness of that coaching search and the timing of it, like, yes, he did hire his boy, but like, it's not the, it's not a bad hire. Honest to God, you, you could have ended up with a hell of a lot worse options. And so that's in place. You have an AD with a backbone in place. Hypo seems uber positive, which yes, all football coaches to some degree seem positive, but I mean, reverse the roles, stick Jeremy Pruitt in these shoes, having to answer all these questions that really had nothing to do with anything he did. Like I imagine he's not going to come off as well at SEC media day podium or just sports center. Like I saw Hypo on the other day, anywhere in general, like he would kind of look like a clown and Hypo doesn't look like a clown. So that's, that's, that's step one in the right direction. How they are going to field a football team and play 12 games this fall. They did have a bunch of dudes in the transfer portal. Let's start there. Who is, what does the talent situation look like? Because Pruitt recruited pretty well. They lost a lot of heavy contributors. I mean, seemed like they were pretty ravaged at linebacker. You know, Garantano, I think, at Washington State. Like, I don't even know where to start with this. I'll just leave the floor to you. Like, what, what does the talent pool and the depth chart in terms of success look like this year for Tennessee? Like, what would be reasonable? There, there is obviously a lot to that question because – Really, it all starts with the changes in scheme that Heifel is bringing in. And it makes it really hard to make predictions because, honestly, he's bringing in a system that the SEC has really never seen. I mean, I, I kid did last year is the closest I've seen. Yes, where it's not it, the same, but you're right. Yeah, I mean, it's even more breakneck overly simplified offensive football that basically leaves the defense out to dry. And I mean, he showed in the spring game, if, if he translates what was in the spring game at all into the regular season, I mean, we are talking 30 second drives if they go badly at most probably. And I mean, your defense is just going to be worn ragged by the end of the first quarter. And that scares me a lot. At the same time, I go, if the offense goes well, you could score a million points. And you, I think it's a formula that can lead to winning some games you maybe thought you weren't going to be able to, like Ole Miss kind of did last year, and then you're going to lose some stupid games also. Uh, Roster-wise, I think there is enough firepower on offense for Heupel to work with. He has brought in some transfer quarterbacks, and he – he has some talent at, at the skill positions that should provide uh, enough power to, to make it in the end zone a few times a game. <laughs> I would put it that way. 
but is Tennessee going to be overwhelming people with any kind of talent? Like Vandy, maybe, maybe. We'll see. But uh, otherwise, I – obviously, I, I think there is a big element with this football team also that they were poorly – any guys that are hanging around from Prude era have been poorly coached in the past, and you got to account for that. And, you know, you, they got to be coached up. And then you're changing scheme, and that can always throw guys through a loop. And you got a guy that's your defensive coordinator that's never been a, a full a fully independent defensive coordinator before. He's been co-DC and never, I believe, if I'm thinking correctly, he's never actually called plays. So, like, there's some elements with this team that are just going to be totally unpredictable. But I think the talent on the offensive side of the ball should be adequate. I think you will have games where you score 30 or 40 points and then the other team scores 50. Uh, it, it's going to be hard to hold those floodgates back because the defense was absolutely ravaged by the transfer portal, by kids just leaving for graduation, whatever it may be. Uh, and then you have kind of a wild card of this new DC. Um, and man, I, I foresee realistically like a four win season. I think that would be my prediction right now. And with the hope, I, I think it's a borderline miracle. If you get 500 or above, I like it's, it's you, you don't have a tough conference game. Pittsburgh. It's winnable. I think, um, I mean, I don't think they're going to be some kind of powerhouse. So you should win those four and then everything in the sec is toss up. I, Man, I, like Vandy is as close to a 500 game. Vandy, South Carolina could definitely be just a toss up. Beyond that, Ole Miss should definitely be Tennessee, I think, um, especially with that quarterback going back. And, and just anybody else need this. Florida. Florida has to be a huge favorite. George has to be a huge favorite over this team unless Tennessee comes out and just has some kind of miraculous, you know, cohesiveness that we don't realize that they have. I, I would say if, if they turn out a, a seven win season, they just had, they ended up having talent that we just didn't realize they had. I would put it that way because looking on paper, it is, it's just not there. Even though you have some exciting guys. I mean, you have, you have Bayless Jones Jr. at, at wideout. He's an exciting guy. Jabari Small, running back. He's an exciting guy. You have some of these transfer quarterbacks, the kid, kid from Virginia Tech. This seems like an exciting player. Uh, Hinden Hooker, a kid from Michigan, Joe Milton. I don't know who starts. The, the Right now the prediction is Joe Milton. And, hey, if, if they can put up some points, that's that's exciting. Maybe you have a few close games against the Georgia or Florida or something like that. And maybe you steal one. I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, if they get into that seven-win-ish type area, they hyper-pulled something out of nothing to me. And that's – that's how I see it currently, but that it is. I, I would. I will also say this in, in my current role, what I do. I don't. I was not at spring practices or anything like that, but I also talked to a bunch of the guys who were and, and listened to that analysis, and I don't think that they saw anything either that that I haven't seen. Quarter quarterbacks is good a place to any to start because you mentioned the similarities in terms of like tempo and what Heupel and Kiffin are trying to do, and Jeff Lebby you know, kind of the same UCF tree or whatever. Like, 
it all, but none of the, like, I think all that would have been rendered moot last year had Kiffin not walked into having Matt Corral. And like the common misconception heading into 2020 last year was like, oh, it'll be John Rice Plumley. Like, can Kiffin throw enough with him? And there was never a world where John Rice Plumley was going to be the starting quarterback for Ole Miss. That was Rich Rodriguez's wet dream. He wanted to recreate Pat White and Steve Slayton. And it was just never happening. I mean, you think about Matt Corral, how he's still at Ole Miss, I have no idea. They spent the entire 19 offseason billing him as the future of the program only to have a lunatic offensive coordinator four games in just pull the plug on it because no one could block for him because this other kid ran really fast like in terms of quarterback arm talent and like just everything you want in a quarterback other than foot speed it was never close and like the misconception locally versus nationally heading into last season was bizarre because there was never a world where Plumlee was going to start at quarterback and so that's probably kind of the kicker here right because Heupel's offense, rightfully so, is known for passing, but they play so fast. I think they had, like, the 25th best rushing attack in the country last year. Like, they they ran the ball pretty damn well, too, but all of that doesn't jive and doesn't work if you don't have a kid that can complete passes at a somewhat consistent level. And you just kind of hit on it a little bit, but it's about as wide open as anything. Like like you said, that kind of your guess is as good as mine or anyone's as to who it'll be. I I can win in it just from what I read on a – 25-minute internet binge of Tennessee football that it might be Harrison Bailey, but they bring in the hooker kid. Like, who would you bet on right now? There seems like there's four kids. Two of them probably have a better shot than the other two, maybe. But, like, who would you – who would you – I guess if you had to wager on it, would start game one? I think Joe Milton or Harrison Bailey. Yeah, I mean, Harrison Bailey showed showed real promise. He's, he's a borderline five-star kid coming in if a bona fide four-star when, when he came in. And he showed promise last year in Pruitt's archaic nonsense offense with Jim Chaney, which was a shame. I, whoever was calling the shots there, whether it was Pruitt meddling or Chaney being incompetent, I don't know. But I, it is absolutely so key with this hypo offense that he just finds the guy that can just be plug and play. And I think that's what he's thinking. He just wants to find that guy because the way his offense operates, you just typically speaking, you, you go to your closest, easiest option. You dump it off. I mean, it's a ton of short passes. It's a ton of screens. It's just overly simplified. I kind of said it earlier and Harris Bailey to me, he was definitely build as a more true pro style kid and Milton is more of an all around uh, guy who could maybe move a little bit more. So I think he, he probably fits more, I would say of a hooker, the kid from Virginia tech. If I'm judging off the spring game, I didn't see it with him. Maybe he takes some miraculous turn at fall ball, but I, I, it, I'm just not sure he's going to be a guy. Um, but it, if it's one of those two guys, I think they're, they're dudes who could fit into the system pretty nicely. And, and if, the, if the talent that needs to develop gets developed the way that I'm sure Hypo is hoping, it's there offensively. I mean, it, it will be – and, like, you have an offensive line also. I mean, your, your most senior probably leader guys are on your offensive line with, with Kate Mays. Um, and so that's good, too. You, you can start with, with some power in the trenches there. Outside of Cade Mays, it's a little more dicey. But, but um, 
Yeah, it, it, nonetheless, that's that's good too. That that up front, you at least have beater on the line, and and some elements like that that could bring that offense together. And it, we really just have to see. I I think fall fall practice should be pretty enlightening. Hopefully, as far as that goes, uh, or or Heupel gives up nothing, and we don't know who the starter is until the day of the game. That could also happen. But just for for right now, it's it really is just kind of guessing in the dark and we'll just have to see how it happens yeah because like if you have like a in it what seems like from kind of watching his offense if you have like a base level of speed at the skill position you don't really have to be like overly dynamic there like you don't really have to have the dk metcalf aj brown demarcus lodge to use an old miss example skill like firepower in that backfield because it's a lot of short passes and getting guys in space and you mentioned the small kid seems pretty pretty competent enough at running back. They got a couple of receivers and you've got at least enough on the offensive line, which I think is the biggest thing because none of it matters. If, if, if these, if any of these new quarterbacks, if, if they're not being blocked for like they, none of that matters, like the rest of it will end up being moot. So it just, it really does seem like if you get competency at quarterback, you could kind of have something there kind of transitioning to the defensive side you mentioned ravage, particularly it seemed like a linebacker. What would you gauge as, well, I don't know. It's too simplistic, but like strength and weakness, because it seems like the the particularly the back end, like linebacker and secondary, seemed like was hit really, really hard by the transfer portal or just people leaving in general. Like, how would you gauge the defense in terms of like competency? Um, I guess I'll just leave it there to you, because it seems like defensive line could be okay, but after that's a lot of question marks. I mean, the strength on this offense. Alante Taylor, one singular guy who's a cornerback. I mean, outside of that, you had who you had the guy who was expected to be your best defensive lineman. He transferred, and this was speculation on my part, but it kind of felt like he—I don't want to say he was forced out, but that there was a little bit of uh, we're not sure that you that you're the right fit. It's you know, it, it was kind of a buy-in thing. It's he's not one of our exactly not in type of deal. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I mean that's a kid who was expected to be your best defensive lineman, so he's not with you anymore. I there's so much just unknown, and this is where I I do think where I said earlier, you know, if Tennessee wins seven games, it would have to come from something that we just hadn't seen yet, and this defense could be that thing. I really think it could where maybe there is just some of this young talent there with an unknown DC and those things just meld together with the addition specifically. And the thing that I, I probably have the, the thing that I have the most hope in is Rodney Garner, uh, who, who's longtime Auburn guy and just a stalwart of the SEC and known to be one of the best assistants in the game. I mean, he's, he's doing God's work on the recruiting trail right now. He, he's actually the lead recruiter for the kid who's the number three player in America, number one player in the state of Tennessee, Ronnie Garner's heading up that recruitment. I mean, he, that's certainly his main function, I would say, is recruiter, but he's also a position coach. And, you know, maybe all of that just comes together for something we didn't realize it could be. Because I, I can tell you this, I'm unbelievably cynical about this this defense. I, I just, I don't know where anything's come from. I don't, like, the uh, the leadership, not a hope, Latte went media days and, and he is seemingly a good leader but he also kind of loses his head sometimes makes dumb mistakes 
Uh, and if, if he can grow up and be better and be the leader they need him to be, that would be amazing. They need it so, so, so badly. But, yeah, I mean, Henry Toto, who was essentially your, your de facto leader of the defense last year, is at Alabama now, which shoot me in the face on that one. That's what a nightmare. And, like, you just, you just got absolutely punched in the gut on the defensive side of the ball. And so I, I – Genuinely, honestly, I could speculate on, on any of these guys. I, I have – I'm looking at the roster here to make sure that, I, you know, I'm not with on anybody's names here. And I just – like, I don't most, – most of these guys, like I could say, like, Aubrey Solomon, he was a transfer who came in. He played a decent amount last season, but it wasn't that good. He didn't play that well. That's, like, the most analysis I can give you on any guys on this defense. Like, they – I just – uh, he could be decent. Tre- Trevon Flowers, major potential there. He has shown big-time flashes, but kind of like Alante Taylor. You, we've seen where he, he can be boneheaded, but also he's had injury troubles. You know, that there's just some things like that where uh, it's just a lot of unknowns. And I, I hope that the potential is met there and they pull a rabbit out of the hat and it and it becomes a miraculous part of this team that we didn't think that it could be. But right now, I look at the offense that Hypo wants to run, and I think, it could be decent. And I look at that defense, and I think, that defense is going to get crushed. I, I genuinely, it will not surprise me. If Hypo runs the offense we saw in the spring game, it will not surprise me if opponents against Tennessee average nearly 40 points a game. It wouldn't surprise me in the least. Also, maybe they only average 25, and you win a few football games. It's it really is just so unknown to me. It'll be kind of interesting to watch if he changes anything he has to do because Ole Miss is still reeling from the one NCAA investigation, but Hugh Freeze not recruiting a solid defensive player for the last three years he was in school. He'd rather have that fifth four-star receiver to where kind of what you're talking about. I remember sitting at a game in Arkansas in 16 and a, a kid named Ray Ray Smith got announced as linebacker and I kind of turned around to the SID and I was like, is he in school here? Who, who is that? Like he, <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to start this game. I, I didn't know he played football here. And, like, so it's, it's kind of like that. But Tennessee seems to have a much better base talent pool, even though you don't know what some of these guys are going to be yet. To where Ole Miss, after that happened with Luke, was working with scholarship restrictions, dudes who weren't good. Uh, you had a terrible coordinator in Wesley McGriff. Like, at least there's competency in place where you can maximize it. What I'm curious to find out, because you saw a little bit of Ole Miss, this with Ole Miss last year, was – one, Kiffin had to be hyper-aggressive because he knew they couldn't get stops. And two, kind of some of the, the fast drives and the fast scoring put the defense, not in a bad spot, but they didn't have much depth. And so, like, I wonder how much Hypo will have to adjust for that, if at all, or if he'll just ride it out and say, we're going to try to score 60 and please God only give up 50. Because when you don't have much defensively, the whole pace of play thing, when that's kind of your calling card, uh, kind of puts your defense inadvertently in a tricky spot. I mean, Matt Corral had a – six interception game and a five interception game last year. And yet somehow they were in both of them in the fourth quarter. I still haven't figured that one out, but I guess what I'm getting at is I wonder if Hypo is not handicapped, but goes about things a little bit differently until they get the pieces in place at all. I I think he definitely could be. Um, The good news is, I guess, is that the SEC is not what it was in the mid two thousands. This is not, this is not the league of the 6-3 game of the century and everybody, oh, defense, what a, with the beautiful game where nobody scores any points. You know, 
everybody has these these breakneck offenses now. That's just the way of the world and the way that it's moving. Even Nick Saban, and I mean, it's why he's the greatest. He, he adapts. He brings in Lane Kiffin, and Lane Kiffin revolutionized that offense. And that you know, and now Saban has won multiple national titles with it. Like at least Heupel has that where he can say, you know, most of the defenses we're going to go up against are not superstar squads um, and they can be scored on. I mean, even somehow Pruitt did find a way to score points, even though his offense was absolute garbage. And if that guy could do it, I surely uh, Heifel can. So it, there, there is that hope, but for sure, my greatest fear with this team is that at the end of the season, we look back on those stats and it says, Average points per game, 37 for Tennessee, 45 for opponents. <laughs> it's what could, it's absolutely a realistic possibility. And so uh, what that turns out to be, I, I'm not totally sure. But like I said, I would be striving, even though it's, it sounds so lame, because, you know, you just want to go, this is Tennessee. We, we should be hoping for more, but this is the spot that Tennessee is in. Get to a bowl game. Get to a bowl game. Win. Get to 500 and get to a bowl game. That has to be just the, exactly where you're looking. That has to be the goal. Yeah, Heifel can come out and be like, we're here to win a national championship or whatever. We all know what the real thing is. Get to a bowl game and, from, and go from there because that would be so huge in just changing the perception of this whole thing giving people hope and hypo, it could really make a massive difference. And like you mentioned, it's not the SEC of old in a lot of ways to where six wins, yes, Tennessee does not seem like on paper like a bowl football team, but like six wins is not as, as hard to come by as you would think. I mean, how Ole Miss went five and five last year. There is actually a world with that defense in a normal season where Ole Miss somehow could have been eight and four uh, with like the way the schedule ended up playing out. And so you give – you give – just for the sake of the argument, they're going to beat Bowling Green. They'll beat Tennessee Tech. Just give them the Pittsburgh game. So they're 3-0 and heading to Florida. That Florida-Missouri thing, maybe you still one against Missouri. I don't know what they're going to be. But whatever. That'll be a tough stretch. That October stretch with South Carolina and Ole Miss back-to-back at home feels like a very crucial stretch. And, like, you said earlier, like, I guess on paper Ole Miss should beat Tennessee. We've all watched this every single year. That mid-October game where the team that's not maybe not as good has had some early season success, and now you've got a, a home game against a team that I guess is on paper better but hasn't really done anything, and they ended up running them out of the stadium. Like, I mean, I'm thinking McElwain's first year at Florida where Ole Miss went down there and, as, like, the number two, three team in the country and just got boat race. Like, you see it happen all the time. So, like, there's six wins on there. You finish with three in a row at home. So, you get the four non-conference. You get a home game with South Carolina. Who knows what they are? You get a home game with Vanderbilt. It seems like it's really just a matter of if you can kind of pick off South Carolina, Ole Miss, maybe a steal one at Kentucky, although I think they'll have a pretty good football team. Like, the roadmap is there. They're just going to have to kind of maximize, and they sure as hell can't have a non-conference slip-up. I think that would probably kill their chances. So, I I just guess I kind of did your own analysis for you, but it does seem like the path is there. It is. And it it does – come down to, when I look at the schedule, exactly what you just said. Really, it is that Pittsburgh game. That's huge. Uh, second game of the season, you got Florida's a loss. You're just at Florida, Tennessee's never going to win at Florida again. I don't know when that'll ever happen. 
Uh, but then that Missouri, South Carolina, Ole Miss, anything could happen there. I think Ole Miss being the toughest of those games um, and the one that I am without a doubt the most excited about uh, and with Kiffin coming, coming back home. Um, and it, I, that is, it's just, that's the whole, honestly, it could be the foundation of Heupel's whole time at Tennessee is, is that stretch because it could take you to a four win season if you lose them all or to a seven win season. I mean, it could turn everything on a dime. If like, if you steal Missouri and you steal South Carolina, it's a new day. Cause at that point you, you would be five and one for Tennessee. Like that would be insane. And so th- that stuff is, is just massive. At Kentucky, I'm not feeling good about it. It's kind of like the Ole Miss game. That that's a tough one. And if they lose, that as ridiculous as that sounds, as a Tennessee fan, I mean, we've beaten Kentucky like 40 times in the last 42 years. I mean, it's just crazy. Uh, but that that's the way that it is right now. Kentucky can absolutely beat Tennessee. Um, so it's it's not gonna be easy. And, and I just say, because of the nature of the game, with Heupel, I do. I look at those, and I go, ah, anything could happen. That's the fun part of Heupel when I think about it. And, and really, the only thing about him that I would say is, like, genuinely exciting is I do look at those games, and I go, like, hey, maybe you score 45, they only score 40. And that's, that is good enough. You just you got to get that W in the win column, and maybe that does it. But uh, it, I got it. I got to see it to believe it it just and Tennessee's looked down too many times before and it feels it feels like a setup where you look at that schedule and you go oh it could happen (laughs) and then it doesn't happen (laughs) but yeah yeah. last thing I got for you is like it's interesting because you know like like you're kind of in a position like Tennessee was where it couldn't have gotten any worse like there was nowhere down to go I mean how there's actually argument to be made that Lane Kiffin was the most competent hire they made since Phil Fulmer. I guess you could argue Butch Jones. I don't know. Who knows? Like, you know what I mean? Like, so you're not a position where it can't get any worse. But like when Butch was there, it became okay, he won some games early. Now let's go win the East. Because the East was down and it was still, I mean, everyone loves to joke the feeling like 98 thing, but that was still very much more prevalent, it seems like five years ago than it is now. Like you, you know, as a fan base, I guess Tennessee ate a gigantic dose of humble pie through the charade of the, you know, the hiring Butch's replacement to the downfall after that. Like, it, it almost seems – I guess what I'm trying to get at is, like, one – I'll phrase it in a question. What do you think Tennessee needs to do to allow Josh Heupel to be successful? And then I guess the comment I'll add to that is, it almost seems like a benefit that he's coming in there with such a low bar and such low expectations that he'll actually kind of have time to work to where if they win six games this year and get to a bowl game – People are genuinely pumped about that without all immediately turning their attention to the SEC East crown in 2022, if that makes sense. So back to phrasing it as a question, what do you think they need to do as an administration athletic department to allow him to be successful long-term? I think it, it'll be a combination of things because it, it will be giving him room to breathe and giving assurances like we're definitely going to give you four years while also probably in the back of your mind if you're Tennessee's AD you go you got four years you know that's that's more than most guys in the SEC get but this is sort of a special situation where you're really doing a full rebuild 
here. While also in the back of your mind, you kind of go, okay, if you really show that you stink three years, I mean, it's it's like Pruitt. I'm sure there was something like, yeah, we'll give you four years, and then he sucked it up so badly <laughs> that they just had to cut ties. Um, I think that'll always be an understanding, but I think give him, give him room to breathe, and I think a combo with that also let them run wild with this NIL stuff. Let them do literally whatever they want. That is the position that you are in. You are not in a position to have a recruit go like, I mean, hell, if a recruit is like, I want to be sponsored by the strip club, by the by campus, you go, absolutely, let's call the strip club. I don't care. You come. If it gets you to come down here and play football at the University of Tennessee, we need you. You know, like, it does, like, let it go. Whatever it takes, because you have to get warm bodies on the field who can win you football games. It's going to be so key. Because that is how you win in the SEC. It is the Jimmys and the Joes. And this NIL stuff gives you the opportunity to bring in guys. Because, I mean, it, it really – if Jeremy Pruitt is any proof at all, if you give him a defense with absolute elite talent, even he can make it work. And and he was a just a bumbling idiot. And so I, I think that if you can get that talent back, because Tennessee – with the resources, the power that it has sells itself to a certain extent. You have a huge fan base. I mean, it is t- Vanderbilt can whine all they want. Tennessee owns the entire state. There is no, oh, we're Nashville's team. No, Tennessee is, Nash- is Nashville's team. You know, there's you have to assert yourself in that way and and really dig in. And I think. As I mentioned before, Rodney Garner needs to be the guy who is leading you to that promised land, and it seems like he's doing a good job so far. And and you bring the the combination of those two things together, and and as I've already mentioned a few times, if you can get this guy at worst to make the job better for the next guy, that's a win all the way around. Um, if you can get it to nine, I all I mean honestly, what I want right now is is like a, a even less good Mark Rick. Like Mark Rick, he made it to the SEC championship game. He almost – he did. I mean, he made it almost right there to the pinnacle and just never could get there. If you could get to where you are just almost in the SEC championship game and you just go, dang it, it's just not enough. We got to move on to the next guy. Good. Because then you're not an absolute – total tire fire where no coach on planet earth even wants to get close to your school because it's absolute toxic nonsense if if you can do that that is a win and then all the better if he can actually take it to the sec championship game if he can actually take it to the playoff what a miracle that would be honestly um and that is just some people don't like that because they say this is tennessee we need to always be for championships that is not obviously that's true that is not the position that you are in right now. You, If you're saying that, you don't realize how bad this situation really is. It is a nightmare. And you just have to come to grips with it and say, come to peace with that and go, we just got to fix it. It's going to take a while. We just got to fix it. And can Hype will do it? <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I don't know, man. 
Well said. He is Charlie Burris. Check him out, A to Z Sports, the Big Orange podcast. Charlie underscore Burris on Twitter. I really appreciate it, man. This was great stuff. I, I really appreciate you being generous with your time. I, I loved it. This was a very enjoyable conversation. And uh, we'll have to do it again, uh, maybe game week. Absolutely. Yeah. Let me know if you have to come back on. All right. That was Charlie Burris. Hope you guys enjoyed the ultra long megapod. I, if you made it to this point, I'm honest to God, a little bit surprised, but I appreciate it. Consider this my makeup gift to you for flubbing up and uh, only getting two pods out this week. So hope you enjoyed it. Uh, everybody have a safe and happy weekend. Maybe some of you are already in the weekend. Continue to enjoy your weekend. Uh, yeah, finish that beer that you're drinking right now. So anyway, we will talk to y'all on Monday. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.